Super Imperialism, The Economic Strategy of American Empire, by Michael Hudson. Part 2, The Institutions of American Empire. Chapter 8, American Strategy Within the World Bank. I went to Savannah to meet the world, and all I met was a tyrant. Keynes, cited in Robert Skidelsky. John Maynard Keynes III, Fighting for Freedom, 1937-1946, New York, 2001, page 468. Referring to the U.S. officials at the IMF World Bank meetings in Savannah. The creation of the World Bank saw Britain jockey in vain to minimize the organization's domination by U.S. government strategists. It had argued at Bretton Woods for the bank and funds head offices to be located in Europe, preferably in London. Britain recognized that their location in the United States, where the bank obviously would be raising most of its funds instead of on the continent where it would be lending most of them during its early years of operation, would tend to make it more creditor-oriented. But America's nearly 40% investment in the bank's stock had bought the decisive voice in its lending and borrowing operations. Inevitably, the creditor called the tune. Britain hoped to at least make the bank as independent from national politics as possible. Having seen U.S. officials tie American loans to a reduced British role in post-war world affairs, Britain preferred to take its chances with more business-oriented creditors to whom a loan was simply a loan, not a lever to extract British surrender to U.S. diplomacy. When a debate arose over just where in the United States the bank should be located, Britain, joined by France and India, favored New York. As the committee on site summarized their logic, the bank and fund should not be associated too closely with the capital of any nation, and the staff and officials should be in an atmosphere conducive to allegiance to the bank and fund. New York, in addition to being a financial and economic world center, would afford a good opportunity for cooperation with the social and economic councils of the United Nations organization. The selection of New York would minimize the technical difficulties of operation. Transportation facilities would be better. Footnote 1. Selected Documents, Board of Governors, Inaugural Meetings, page 29F. Quoted in Horsefield, the International Monetary Fund, 1945-1965, to page 129, into footnote 1. But the U.S. delegation insisted that the IMF and World Bank offices be situated in Washington, confirming control by government rather than by private financial interests. As intergovernmental institutions, it was argued, the bank and fund should be free of any possible influence from economic and financial or commercial private interests. Calling a spade a spade, the U.S. delegates pointed out that recent years had seen a shift of international financial policymaking from New York to Washington. The judgment of the government of the country in which the fund and thus the World Bank, which shared the IMF's offices in the early years, is to be located, should be given substantial weight. Washington, D.C. affords a better opportunity for the members to communicate with the representatives of their respective governments. So... While the United Nations ended up in New York, the bank and fund were placed in Washington close to U.S. officials from the Treasury and State Departments and to planners from the executive branch. The Americans saw the distinction between private and governmental interests to be of central importance. Many members of Congress endorsed a position that the function of governments in the post-war world was to ensure world peace by taking economic decisions out of private hands. Senator Pepper of Florida told a labor group in March 1945 
that large banks were seeking to dominate international finance against the interests of the nation and the world, a view supported by the Teamsters Union. More to the point for international diplomats, Pepper added, Congress made it clear, if it had not been clear already, that the executive directors of the bank and the fund were not to be international civil servants, but would be, at least so far as the United States was concerned, answerable to their own governments. Footnote 2. Quoted in Bruce Nyson, The World Bank, a Political Institution, Pacific Research and World Empire Telegram 2, September, October, 1971, page 15. Quoting a report in the New York Times dated March 24, 1945, and Mason and Asher, The World Bank, since Bretton Woods, page 34. End of footnote 2. The United States would not let other countries force it to finance policies not deemed to be in its own national interest. A year later, in March 1946, at the close of the World Bank IMF meetings in Savannah, Georgia, former Treasury Secretary Morgenthau explained that Bretton Woods tried to get away from the concept of control of international finance by private financiers who were not accountable to the people. He pointed out that, under the leadership of President Roosevelt, I sought, for a period of 12 years, to move the financial center of the world from London and Wall Street to the United States Treasury and to create a new concept between nations in international finance, urging that a government-oriented diplomat, rather than a representative of private banking interests, be appointed first president of the bank, Morgenthau warned that, I feel very deeply, that if, at the insistence of the United States, Lewis Douglas, president of the Mutual Life Insurance Company, a major prospective buyer of World Bank bonds, is elected the head of the World Bank, the Truman administration will be regarded, and justly so, as having by the stroke of a pen handed back control of international finance to Wall Street. Footnote 3. Morgenthau shocked by news Douglas Mayhead World Bank. The New York Herald Tribune, March 31st, 1946. See also Council for Foreign Relations, the United States and World Affairs, 1945 to 1947, page 380. End of footnote 3. Instead, he insisted the International Monetary Fund and World Bank should be instrumentalities of sovereign governments and not of private financial interests. The National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies, NAC, was created within the U.S. government to oversee the operations of the World Bank IMF and other intergovernmental lending institutions. Headed by the Secretary of the Treasury, it included the Secretaries of State and Commerce, the Chairman of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, and the Chairman of the Board of Directors of the Export-Import Bank. The U.S. executive directors of the bank and fund were responsible directly to the NAC for their votes in these organizations. Control of international finance was being wrested from Wall Street by Washington as if Wall Street, not Washington, had been responsible for the breakdown of world payments in the 1920s and 1930s. The new Treasury Secretary, Fred Vinson, headed the U.S. delegation to Savannah. He made it clear that more than just convenience was at stake in locating the bank's offices in Washington rather than New York. The World Bank and IMF, he asserted, are cooperative enterprises of governments and their chief businesses with governments. Their location in Washington would have the great merit of making it easy for all the members to carry on their business with them, since all members have adequate representation in that city. But more than merely this convenience is at stake. The fund and the bank are not business institutions in the ordinary sense. 
while they must be operated, so as to conserve their assets and allow the most fruitful use of their facilities, they are not profit-making institutions. The business of the fund and bank involves matters of high economic policy. They should not become just two more financial institutions. Footnote 4. Mason and Asher, the World Bank since Bretton Woods, page 38, quoting Fred M. Vinson. After the Savannah Conference, Foreign Affairs, 24, July 1946, page 626, into footnote 4. Opposing the U.S. position strongly was Keynes, who argued that the World Bank and IMF should be located in New York so as to keep them clear of the politics of Congress and the nationalistic whispering gallery of the embassies and legations. He concluded his speech at the Savannah meeting by making an allusion to Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty ballet, warning that the fairy Carabas had not been forgotten, lest coming uninvited she should curse the children, you two brats, he visualized her saying, she'll grow up politicians. Your every thought and act shall have an arere pensee. Everything you determine shall not be for its own sake or on its own merits, but because of something else. Upon losing the location issue, he remarked that, in the light of the unyielding attitude taken up by the American representative, we are prepared to accept the proposal of the United States, but I am afraid that the arguments employed here have not persuaded us that a mistake is not being made. Footnote 5. Quoted in Mason and Asher, Ibid, page 37, and Horsfield, the International Monetary Fund, 1945-1965, to 1965, pages 123 and 130. End of footnote 5. Skinelsky cites letters that Keynes wrote to the effect that the Americans had no idea of international cooperation, since they are the biggest partners they think they have the right to call the tune on practically every point. The Latin American delegates, Keynes added, simply read the speeches prepared for them by the State Department. Footnote 6. Skidelsky, John Maynard Keynes, 3. Fighting for Freedom, 1937-1946, page 465. End of footnote 6. The Manchester Guardian echoed Keynes's views. The American Treasury, which in these matters seems at present to take the lead over the State Department, massed its voting powers and ran the conference in a rigidly domineering manner. Every proposal put forward by the American delegation was pressed through with steamroller tactics, and the delegation seems to have made no secret of its belief that the United States, which pays the piper, has a right to call the tune. In fact, the worst fears of those who had always warned us that this was what the United States meant by international economic cooperation were borne out at Savannah. Footnote 7, The Manchester Guardian, March 23, 1946, quoted in Mason and Asher, The World Bank since Bretton Woods, page 39. End of footnote 7. Conflict between business principles and those of power politics also caused a clash at the Savannah meetings over the status of the banks and funds executive directors who were to be placed in charge of the bank's day-to-day -day transactions as well as governing its long-term operations. The United States insisted that they be full-time officials, working at the bank and fund on a day-to-day -day basis at high salaries, not part-time functionaries with other more primary appointments in their own countries, and hence in tune with the needs of these countries, most of whom would be debtors to the United States. Since the executive directors are directly responsible to their respective governments, this, again, would ensure strong government control over the World Bank, particularly U.S. government control since the U.S. executive director would have 40% of the vote on all matters. The English argued for executive directors who were only part-time unsalaried and only occasional overseers of the operations being carried out by the World Bank president, who was to be a full-time international official free from loyalties to any government. Again, the British lost. Footnote 8. Nyssen, 
the World Bank, a political institution, page 16, end of footnote 8. As matters turned out, members of the bank's board of directors from the United States and other creditor nations considered that their countries owned the bank. If they were representatives of borrowing countries, they felt the bank existed for the purpose of lending money to their countries. Footnote 9, Mason and Asher, the World Bank, since Bretton Woods, page 96, quoting Morton M. Mendels, the first secretary of the bank from the Oral History Project of Columbia University interviews recorded in the summer of 1961 on the World Bank. End of footnote 9. And it was the American government that held veto power. The executive directors led by the U.S. appointee were to overshadow its president, who was supposed to be internationalist in outlook, although an American appointee. His anticipated lack of authority within the bank complicated the search for someone to fill the position. It was first offered to Assistant Secretary of Commerce William L. Clayton, who also was the alternate U.S. governor of the IMF. But Commerce Secretary Burns urged him to remain with the Commerce Department. Edward E. Brown, the only banker in the U.S. delegation to Bretton Woods, declined the job for reasons of health. Lewis Douglas was next offered the job. He, who elicited Morgenthau's anguished comments cited above, and turned it down. Finally, Eugene Meyer, publisher of the Washington Post, accepted the position in June 1946, but six months later, just as the bank was to begin its loan operations, he resigned, saying that he had agreed to stay only for a while and that since the bank was now ready to begin its loan operations, a permanent head should take over. To those who looked for deeper reasons, the bank president's anomalous position seemed the most plausible. The World Bank was being run not by its president, but by directors expressing national policies, though many would blame the president for the bank's difficulties or failures. He had little real power to prevent them. Footnote 10. The United States in World Affairs, 1945-1947, page 380F, end of footnote 10. The problem, evidently, was that Mr. Meyer, as president, had less power than the American executive director, Emilio G. Collado. Under the Bretton Woods Agreements Act of July 1945, Collado, a State Department and former Treasury economist, was responsible to the National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies, NAC, whose task was to coordinate government lending policy and operations, and particularly to keep our activities in the fund and the bank in line with national lending activities. By statute, the American representatives on the bank were subject to control by the NAC, that body's approval was required whenever American agreement was essential for the bank to act. The president, on the other hand, had to give his entire allegiance to the bank, member countries being forbidden by the Articles of Agreement to influence him. He could not be the instrument of American policy, yet he could not run the bank unless American policy supported him. Footnote 11 Ibid, pages 370-371 to and 381. End of footnote 11. With these caveats now spelled out, the search for a president began again under less favorable circumstances than before. The New York financial community, meanwhile, had acquired a virtual veto power over the choice of the new head. Unless they approved the man chosen, the bank would have a hard time raising money from its largest potential investors. Clayton again was offered the post and again turned it down, followed by Herbert Lehman and Avril Harriman. Graham Towers, governor of the Bank of Canada, was the first and last non-American to be offered the post, but turned it down upon advice from his government, no doubt, on the ground that a non-American president of the bank could only be a figurehead in the face of U.S. control of its stock. Alan Sproul, head of the Federal Reserve Board of New York, declined the position, as did John J. McCloy, former Assistant Secretary of War, and Daniel W. Bell, 
former undersecretary of the treasury and by this time a washington bank president footnote twelve c nison the world bank a political institution page sixteen end of footnote twelve all these rejections occurred within the space of just one month negotiations were reopened with mccloy who accepted the post under certain definite conditions one became apparent when Collado resigned and was replaced by Eugene Black, a New York banker associated with the Chase National Bank for whom McCloy's law firm was counsel. As vice president of the bank, McCloy picked Robert L. Gardner, financial vice president of General Foods. By choosing his own team, the new president clearly expected to overcome the difficulties of the bank's structure, as well as exacting a commitment from U.S. government officials that the bank's operating philosophy would favor safer loans on harder credit terms, then were originally anticipated. Footnote 13, The United States in World Affairs, 1945-1947, to page 381, end of footnote 13. McCloy also demanded an important change in the bank's Articles of Agreement. The executive directors were to concern themselves with long-term issues, not day-to-day -day operations. The result of these changes taken together was to increase the voice of the bank's president, a tendency that would become increasingly marked over future decades, culminating in Robert McNamara's tenure. The election of John J. McCloy as president, the New York Times reported, is considered here a victory for Wall Street, and for British theories as to how the bank should have been organized in the first place. McCloy confirmed this view in May 1947. The necessity of going to private investors for funds, in addition to keeping the bank's management in touch with financial markets, also ensures that its operations will be free of political influence. Footnote 14, Nyson, The World Bank, a Political Institution, page 17, quoting the New York Times, March 4th and May 27th, 1947, into footnote 14. For the time being, private finance capital seemed to have gained the ascendant hand over government. The bank's transition from reconstruction to development lending. After 1952, the World Bank began to shift its focus from reconstruction loans to Europe to infrastructure loans to less developed countries. The Latin American delegates to Bretton Woods had succeeded in lengthening the World Bank's originally proposed title to the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. They also had asked that its resources be divided half and half between reconstruction and development aims, but were overruled by joint U.S. and European opposition. From the outset, the World Bank's lending strategy to the less developed countries was restricted to sectors in which industrialization of these countries served U.S. interests. The pretense was that foreign dependency on U.S. food exports was supposed to reflect mutual interdependency. The bank's project lending thus was warped not only by narrow U.S. self-interest, but also the shortcomings of the orthodox economic thought in which this national interest was wrapped. Morgenthau believed that some liberal harmony of economic interests between the more and less developed countries existed, on the ground that the process of industrialization, without which improvement of living standards is unattainable, can be most efficiently accomplished by an increasing volume of imports of machinery and equipment. And what could be more natural than for India and China to import such goods from England and the United States with their vastly expanded capacity for producing such goods? Footnote 15, Senate Hearings, page 611, from Morgenthau's article, Bretton Woods and International Cooperation Foreign Affairs, January 1945, End of footnote 15. In keeping with this view, World Bank and IMF lending activities were designed to finance large-scale exports of capital goods and engineering services from the United States and later from other developed nations, without actually financing the development of those sectors in the emerging countries that might displace U.S. exports, above all agriculture. The congressional hearings on the Bretton Woods agreements reveal a fear of Latin American and other countries underselling 
U.S. farmers or displacing U.S. agricultural exports. Instead of the hope that these countries might evolve toward agricultural self-sufficiency, the limited discussion of agricultural problems that did transpire in the U.S. hearings dealt entirely with the benefits to U.S. farm exports from World Bank and IMF lending activities. Footnote 16. See, for instance, in House hearings, the testimonies of Harry A. Bullis of General Mills, page 497, Edward O'Neill of the American Farm Bureau Federation, page 600F, Russell Smith of the National Farmers Union, page 1036, and the observations of Rep. Baldwin of Maryland, page 274FF, end of footnote 16. Assistant Secretary of State Clayton observed that the World Bank lending program would certainly be a very good one for agricultural exports because as you help develop these countries, help develop their resources, and help develop them industrially, you will shift their economy somewhat from an agricultural economy to an industrial economy so that I think in the end you would create more markets for your agricultural products rather than otherwise. Footnote 17 Ibid, page 276. End of footnote 17. In other words, industrialization of these countries was to be accompanied by growing food deficits and hence higher import dependency. This self-interested U.S. promotion of foreign food dependency fostered a destructive theory of economic growth that has characterized the World Bank since its inception. The view that industrialization of impoverished food deficit countries can be undertaken without fundamentally modernizing their agricultural sectors. Rather than promoting agricultural productivity in those countries, Clayton merely observed that if you have a country that today is devoting all of its labor and nearly all of its economic activity to the production of agricultural products for export, if you help develop them industrially and use their labor and other things for industrial development, I think it will take something from their agricultural activities and to some extent reduce the competition which we have in this country. Footnote 18 Ibid, page 286, into footnote 18. This narrow U.S. self-interest in formulating the World Bank's lending and development philosophy precluded the bank from the outset from playing a positive role in the Third World's impending economic and social revolution. Of all the interests left unrequited at Bretton Woods, those of the agriculturally backward countries were the most serious. U.S. delegates simply anticipated that these countries would increase their purchases of American farm products, which they could have produced for themselves if only they had set out to structurally modernize their agricultural sectors. Without this structural economic dimension, macroeconomic policies were doomed to miss the important needs of countries requiring development aid. What was to be developed was their export enclaves to produce raw materials needed by North American and European industry at prices satisfactory to the user countries. Suppliers of these commodities would have to be willing to participate in the International Division of Labor as it then existed. That meant accepting continued dependence on non-food raw material exports. Should they elect not to participate in this proposed trade-off of their long-term balanced growth and economic independence for immediate short-term U.S. resources, they would become exiles in the Western economic community, as Cuba became after its 1959 revolution. They were asked to lay open their home markets in exchange for international commodity agreements designed to stabilize their terms of trade in the interests of the industrialized, raw materials-consuming nations. 
U.S. foreign aid would compensate them for the presumably transitory economic difficulties that their acceptance of the existing world division of labor entailed. But the full scope and permanence of these difficulties was not faced either by the developed nations or by the governments then in office in the backward countries. The bylaws of the new U.S.-dominated economic institutions were designed to maximize U.S. diplomatic leverage over foreign governments so as to impose the existing international specialization of labor as a permanent pattern on the post-war world. From the U.S. point of view, the post-war laissez-faire institutions were protectionist in one key respect. They protected U.S. industrial and agricultural exporters and investors against foreign economic nationalism. This was free trade imperialism in its classic form. Progress of less developed countries toward agricultural and industrial self-sufficiency, which had gained momentum during their years of war-enforced isolation, was halted and reversed. Their gold reserves were drained to the United States and Europe. As a result, the polarization of the world into developed and impoverished countries has increased. Not only have the underdeveloped countries failed to embark upon self-sustaining growth, they have failed even to increase food output in keeping with their population growth. During the 1960s, their per capita food output actually declined by 2%. In the non-communist industrial countries, it increased by 11%. The industrial nations thus have increased their productivity advantage over the poorer countries in agriculture as well as in manufacturers. As a result, the U.S. trade surplus in agricultural products increased during the 1960s, even as its trade balance in industrial manufacturers was deteriorating. That pattern is still continuing today, 2021. Back in the 1940s, the doctrine of comparative advantage promised that agriculturally backward countries would continue to export food surpluses to obtain industrial manufacturers. Yet, most have seen their food deficits widen. What glib free trade doctrine failed to anticipate was that international productivity differentials continually evolve in agriculture, as well as in industry, generally at the expense of the agriculturally backward countries. This is why the former grain-exporting regions of Latin America and Southeast Asia have fallen into food deficit status. The international reserves with which they emerged from World War II were exhausted. One is tempted to say squandered to finance their outmoded institutions of land tenure and the related technology that represents their burdensome agricultural heritage in Latin America, a quasi-feudal legacy descended from the Spanish land grants. In most of Africa, collectivist forms of land tenure, in the absence of modern farm technology, and in the Asian countries, a heritage of microfundia interspersed with plantation export agriculture. The upshot has been that instead of developing, most of these countries are retrogressing. It would be to the World Bank's credit that it attempted to move these countries toward industrialization, were it not for the fact that its strategy of economic development has fostered their industrial growth without renovating the agricultural base requisite for this growth. Only 8% of World Bank lending through 1962 was for agricultural purposes, and subsequently the agricultural loans were made mainly to facilitate the production and exportation of plantation crops. Instead of spurring economic growth within a stable institutional framework, World Bank loans have worked to destabilize the economies of its loan applicants. 
by overemphasizing the creation of an urban industrial infrastructure and export-oriented extractive and transport industries, its loan programs have stimulated an unmanageable rural exodus of untrained migrants into the cities, aggravating these countries' food deficits. Given the failure of agricultural output to increase sufficiently to make up for this attrition of farm labor, food shortages have developed that have led to an inflation of living costs and wage rates and the exhaustion of international reserves to pay for increased food imports. The bank does not appear to have recognized this, or rather, it is in firm denial. It continues to be limited by a crudely technological view of growth that fails to take into account the dimension of social efficiency. It confuses the problem of economic advance within an established growth pattern with the problem of backwardness, the resolution of which requires the transformation of practices, institutions, and fiscal policies that render labor and land uneconomic under existing methods of production and tenure. The bank's diagnosis of the problems of backwardness shares the deficit of most free enterprise academic economics today in limiting its scope to merely technical problems of resource allocation within existing institutional structures not concerning itself with their transformation. This tunnel vision is reflected in the stabilization programs that the bank and IMF have recommended to client countries and indeed imposed on them, often aggravating the borrower's instability. Applying merely monetary solutions to structural deficits attacks the economic symptoms instead of underlying causes. By conceiving of the needs of these countries merely in terms of financial stability within existing foreign and trade investment patterns, and by freezing their existing political and institutional structures with all their irrationalities and archaisms, World Bank and IMF development and stabilization programs have resulted in malformed development, instability, and the downfall of governments that have attempted to impose these programs. Argentina and Turkey in 1958 are early cases in point. Footnote 19. On the former case, see, for instance, I. Eshtag and R. Thorpe. Economic and Social Consequences of Orthodox Policies in Argentina in the Post-War Years. Bulletin of the Oxford Institute of Economics and Statistics, February 1965. End of footnote 19. Russia. In the aftermath of 1991, is the most blatant example in a long train of such misadventures. The World Bank and IMF were designed to solve certain problems, but not to bring about a revolution in agricultural productivity in the less developed countries, nor to promote social restructuring of any kind. The problems of backwardness were left essentially untouched by writing a politically conservative operational vision into the bank's articles of agreement. For one thing, the bank was permitted to lend to only governments and official agencies, but many governments, particularly those dominated by landed oligarchies, were not at all eager to implement agricultural modernization and its associated land reform. The original reason given for this policy constraint was that a major factor dictating relatively high interest rates to borrowers in the less developed countries was their historically high rate of default. That led to a correspondingly low creditworthiness of private sector borrowers in these countries. By restricting loans to public entities, the bank obtained official guarantees against risk. As so often happens to economic planners, especially to laissez-faire planners, the attempt to resolve one problem created another. Many governments were, and still are, dominated or strongly influenced by the very classes whose power must be reduced by the process of economic modernization, particularly in agriculture. So, this bank provision limited its ability to transform social institutions in the backward countries. As J.J. J. Spengler observed in 1954, 
It being the purpose of a mission to induce action on the part of the government of a visited country, its recommendation must be limited to those which it feels that the government can, as a practical matter, carry out. Accordingly, missions must necessarily refrain from suggesting institutional or other changes which are completely beyond the scope of practical politics. Footnote 20, J.J. Spingler, IBRD Mission Economic Growth Theory, American Economic Review, May 1954, page 583. End of footnote 20. The interests of many governments in food deficit countries thus coincided with that of the United States in not pressing the bank to emphasize the distinction between growth within an existing institutional framework and the need to modernize it. In addition to overt U.S. self-interest in promoting this political constraint on bank operations, there were historical and doctrinal reasons why its Articles of Agreement were designed along these lines. Historically, the authors of the Articles of Agreement looked back retrospectively toward the problems of the 1930s, not to those of the 1950s and 1960s. One of the problems of interwar lending that the bank had sought to overcome, for instance, was that bilateral aid often was accompanied by political pressure being given as part of an economic, political, or military trade-off to ensure that the bank would not be involved in such coercion the framers of its articles of agreement in article four section ten prohibited it from using economic pressure e g the withholding of loans as a political lever with which to effect economic change but it was just such pressure and just such change that was needed to bring about revision of fiscal policies and modernize land ownership patterns in most countries borrowing from the bank the effect of this prohibition against social pressure was to curtail positive political pressure that the bank might have exerted toward institutional change, while not preventing it from indirectly exerting social pressures of a contrary conservative nature. Financial stability often spells social rigidity. Borrowing countries found themselves tied to the financial policies and philosophy of economic growth implicit in the bank's lending operations. As a condition for receiving loans, they were required to undertake stabilization programs that increasingly resulted in widespread strikes, unemployment, and political upheavals, and which froze existing inequities instead of dissolving them. Another problem working against lending to modernize agriculture to a degree that it would have helped the bank's customers maintain or achieve self-sufficiency in basic food production was that the bank was only permitted to lend foreign currencies. This constraint was imposed mainly because the bank was designed primarily to promote U.S. exports, not foreign development and resources. Agricultural modernization requires expenditure in local currencies for educational and extension services, transport and marketing services, and associated rural programs, but the bank was precluded from lending local currencies. To make things worse, it could lend only for profit-making projects, whereas agricultural modernization requires subsidized infrastructure. That is the lesson of U.S. and Chinese experience, certainly the most successful modernization programs in recent history. A rationale for opposing local currency loans was that some degree of self-help was necessary to prevent the squandering of funds on unproductive projects, something that had indeed characterized many interwar aid loans to governments. While this foreign currency provision did have the positive effect of requiring recipients of loans to commit a substantial amount of their own funds to finance the domestic expenditure portion of their development plans, it unfortunately precluded bank lending in such areas as financing the purchase of land by tenants and serfs for restructuring the agricultural of backward countries, financing rural credit facilities and cooperatives, developing a crop distribution infrastructure, and other projects calling mainly for domestic currency expenditures to the extent that the 
bank has been able to make loans for agricultural purposes. It has been limited to the financing only of agricultural technology, which can be imported from the more advanced nations. As early as 1951, a group of United Nations experts observed. What is important is to build up the capacity of underdeveloped countries to produce goods and services. The bank should start from this point, rather than from the measurement of foreign currency needs, and if development succeeds, the transfer problem of meeting the debt charges should take care of itself. At present, the bank puts the cart of foreign exchange difficulties before the horse of economic development. Footnote 21, United Nations, Measures for the Economic Development of Underdeveloped Countries, New York, 1951, page 82, into footnote 21. In addressing itself mainly to the problems of the past, the bank created new ones that in fact were implicit in its operating philosophy. Above all was the laissez-faire doctrine of comparative advantage, bolstered by a generalized productivity maximization theory of economic growth, dominated more by quasi-Keynesian macroeconomic e income theory than by the concept of improving actual output. Existing free trade patterns were locked in or imposed by fiat, by bank planners and the government strategists who shaped their policies. It is true that the bank was constrained to make loans for productive purposes only, but productive was defined as capable of generating a financial surplus to amortize the loan and pay interest upon it in a definable time span. The concentration of bank loans for such self-liquidating projects as electric power was taken in many quarters to imply an identification of growth with monetary accumulation, not with social change. A 1958 report by the Rand Corporation, for example, concluded that in view of the fact that most of the bank's loans were for electric power utilities and transportation, it is clear that the bank regards these kinds of investment as the key to economic development. Footnote 22, The Failures of the World Bank Missions, Publication P1411, June 24, 1958, page 8, end of footnote 22. Its loans were mainly for electric power and transportation facilities to accommodate commodities produced by the export sector. Yet, the published country reports of most of the World Bank's survey missions have placed major emphasis on agricultural development, as did the bank's soft loan affiliate, the International Development Association, IDA. It probably is more appropriate to say that while the bank realized that profitable loans could finance only a small part of the agriculturally backward country's total development needs, it was prohibited by its Articles of Agreement from making loans for any purposes other than those that generate a revenue sufficient to amortize its loan with interest. The bank makes loans by borrowing in the open market at going commercial rates, supplying these funds to borrowing countries with a 1% to 1.5% premium as compensation for risk. It has itself decried the lack of suitable projects to qualify for its loan funds under this constraint. The result of these institutional limitations has been to bias bank lending against agriculture. It is as if technological and financial inputs by themselves can suffice, to ensure economic evolution on the pattern experienced by today's developed nations. This failure to recognize the social and political dimension of the problems inherent in development lending was reinforced by the World Bank's initial success in extending reconstruction loans to the European nations that did not require fundamental social restructuring. The bank believed it could repeat this early salutary experience in Latin America, Africa, and other less developed regions. On the assumption that their growth was simply a matter of providing adequate technological and financial inputs, it followed that money and technology could finance a takeoff into non-communist democracy, even if non-participatory. 
Economies were deemed capable of taking care of themselves once these technical inputs were provided, achieving a peaceful transition to prosperity. It was as if highly sophisticated capital could be applied by quasi-serfs, such as Chile's inquilinos, on rented land as readily as by trained farmers on large American owner-operated farms. But in many countries, World Bank lending went hand-in-hand hand with right-wing death squads descending on the landscape to block attempts at land redistribution. In other countries, World Bank programs became associated with the privatization of land and natural resources in a modern equivalent of the 16th-18th century enclosure movement in England, all to promote raw materials exports without increasing self-sufficiency in food. As long as this overall technocratic and politically narrow-minded philosophy persists on the part of the World Bank and its administrators, its lending policies will be unable to address, much less to solve, the structural problems of backwardness. Sophisticated technology is barely relevant in agriculturally backward countries where adverse forms of land tenure prevail. Perhaps new seed varieties and fertilizers might increase output on an Indian farm, one foot wide and fifty feet long, but to what avail? A Chilean inquilino could, technically speaking, apply fertilizer to his plot of land and increase crop yields. But without land reform, he will be thwarted by the country's archaic land tenure system, under which increased yields are appropriated by the landlord. Technology is not something merely technical. It is social in nature. Can any other premise explain why food deficit Chile is a net exporter of guano and other nitrates while its own lands are under-fertilized? Or why most citizens of India, with 20% of the world's cattle population, should subsist on milk deficit and meat deficit diets. The promise of modern technology may indeed hold out a bright potential for future food output, but this promise cannot be realized under today's social constraints that maintain the institutional backwardness of the food deficit countries. Because the bank's agricultural lending is limited to the importation of a farm technology that is inapplicable by the vast majority of the tillers of the food deficit country soils, it can only aggravate the dual economy structure of these countries. And because the bank is permitted to lend only to governments with no option to lay down social conditions for its loans except since 1990 to demand privatization and trickle-down fiscal policies, its lending activities must work to entrench these governments' invested interests despite their failure to lead their societies to the point of sustained development. Transforming the institutions of land tenure has been deemed to lie outside the bank's development activities, as have most of the social and political aspects of economic development. Some bank economists and survey missions have taken pains to assert that the bank's aim is not to achieve an agricultural revolution on which to base industrial development, but merely to increase productivity in whatever sectors offer the greatest opportunity. Typical of this attitude is the report of the bank's first survey mission to Colombia. Increased productivity, it asserted, permits the release of resources that can be devoted to the production of more essential or useful objects. Hence, it is not a question of stressing productivity per capita or efficiency in all fields. Footnote 23, The Economic Development of Columbia, Baltimore, 1950, page 354, end of footnote 23. Emphasis was placed on non-agricultural sectors on the ground that industry offered the greatest scope for specialization of labor under the prevailing conditions in most food deficit countries. No attempt was made to alter prevailing conditions or modernize Columbia's social and political institutions. 
The bank's implied productivity focus thus stands in contradiction to U.S. experience. The productivity gains of American farmers in the post-war period outstripped the gains of any industry in any country of the world, including the United States itself. The foreseen gains from industrial growth in food deficit countries were portrayed as consisting of import substitution through growth in industrial manufactures. What was not emphasized were the losses suffered in the form of diseconomies associated with a dual economy, the rural exodus into the cities, and decline in agricultural output. These problems often have been catalyzed, as in India, by pricing policies aimed at reducing crop prices instead of supporting them at a level sufficient to induce broad application of capital to land. On balance, these external diseconomies often exceed those that would have been associated with a policy of institutional reform and an initial emphasis on agriculture as the basis for balanced growth. Voicing his own and other World Bank economists' convictions, however, John H. Adler, director of the bank's Nigerian survey mission, asserted that, while it may be true that emphasis on agricultural improvements may yield positive and welcome results in the form of larger availabilities of foodstuffs and agricultural raw materials, and therefore of a higher real per capita income, these improvements will not set into motion a cumulative process of development which has characterized the economic history of the countries which enjoy the highest per capita income. Footnote 24, John H. Adler, Fiscal and Monetary Implementation of Development Programs, American Economic Review, May 1952, end of footnote 24. The reason he declared was mainly the absence in agriculture of the external economies that occur in industry. In one sense, that is true. The development of a large plantation-based, export-oriented agriculture has had no more salubrious impact in creating a home market or nurturing a trained class of rural entrepreneurs in today's backward countries than it did in the southern states of America prior to the Civil War. But without a primary focus on agricultural reform, including land and tax reform, as the mainspring of economic development and self-dependency, food deficit countries will be deprived of the basic institutional prerequisites to growth that the bank's conservative growth models dismiss as external economies, that is, economies extraneous to the narrow scope of their development philosophy. Despite such examples of the bank's anti-agricultural prejudice, most of its survey mission reports placed primary emphasis on the need to develop the agricultural sectors of client countries. The missions generally are in agreement that agriculture provides the greatest number of forward and backward linkages, affects the largest sector of the population, and generates the major portion of national income in less developed countries. Footnote 25. See the published reports of the World Bank Missions to Ceylon, 1953, page 108F, Nicaragua, 1953, page 29, page 31, Syria, 1956, page 35F, British Guiana, 1953, page 25F, Guatemala, 1951, pages 23 and 27, Iraq, 1952, page 4, Nigeria, 1955, page 192, Turkey, 1951, pages 32 and 57, Tanganyika, 1962, page 5F, Jordan, 1957, page 12, Uganda, 1962, page 15F, Thailand, page 4, etc., all published by John Hopkins Press in Baltimore. End of footnote 25
Indeed, the missions have been among the leaders in enumerating the disadvantages of land tenure systems characterized by insecurity of title or proprietorship and of tenant-farmer and inquilino institutions that stifle incentive on the part of those who work the soil. These bank missions are generally in accord with the observations of the United Nations in its important studies of land reform and progress in land reform, published in 1951 and 1952, respectively. The 1951 UN Land Reform Study points out that, In the first place, the tenant has little incentive to increase his output since a large share of any such increase will accrue to the landowner, who has incurred no part of its cost. In the second place, the high share of the produce taken by the landowner may leave the peasant with a bare subsistence minimum with no margin for investment. Thirdly, it means that wealth is held in the form of land and that the accumulation of capital does not lead to productive investment. Footnote 26, Land Reform, New York, 1951, page 18, into footnote 26. Other disadvantages of existing patterns of land tenure have been enumerated by various World Bank missions. The mission to Ceylon observed that land without title cannot be used as security for loans and that insecurity of title also means that he, the peasant, will find it impossible to borrow, even for improvements to his land. Footnote 27. The Economic Development of Ceylon, Baltimore, 1953, page 362. See also The Economic Development of Tanganyika, Baltimore, 1962, page 94, end of footnote 27. Of course, where land has been able to be pledged, the creditor is able to foreclose and turn the holder into a financial serf. No programs have been developed to provide rural credit in the context of security of widespread land tenure. The bank's survey mission to Jamaica reported that the size of farms is more important than questions of ownership and tenancy. Many farms are too small to support a family. Footnote 28. The Economic Development of Jamaica, Baltimore, 1952, page 161. End of footnote 28. Often the two extremes of excessive fragmentation of land and excessive holdings are to be found side by side. In Colombia, for example, large numbers of farm families are trying to eke out an existence on too little land, often on slopes of 50 or even 100 percent, 45 degrees or more. As a result, they exploit the land very severely, adding to erosion and other problems, and even so are not able to make a decent living. Footnote 29, The Economic Development of Colombia, page 63, also page 360. End of footnote 29. In face of such methods, although the good level arable land situated near populous centers is strictly limited, it is for the most part devoted to the grazing of cattle and is customarily owned by absentee landlords. Footnote 30, Ibid, page 383. End of footnote 30. The Bank's Columbia mission gave first priority to the solution of what the United Nations Progress in Land Reform termed the uneconomic and paradoxical use of land. Footnote 31, Progress in Land Reform, New York, 1952, page 185, which cites many other instances of this dual economic structure. See also the reports of the World Bank Missions to Malaya, 1956, page 314, Ceylon, page 360, Syria, page 68, Suriname, page 119, etc., I provide a complete set of references in my 1963 MA thesis for New York University, the World Bank's philosophy of development with special reference to lending policies in the agricultural sector. End of footnote 31, but such survey missions did not find their opinions echoed in the day-to-day -day workings of the bank. 
Farm size, for instance, is inextricably linked with the problem of land tenure, as are the problems of introducing improved technological practices, rural credit and marketing facilities, and modernizing the tax systems in the food deficit countries, as long as the bank's articles of agreement preclude it from fostering development in these directions, it cannot claim to make the needed beginning in renovating the agricultural sectors of its client countries and enabling their domestic farms to feed their growing populations. Although many of these countries were net food exporters immediately following World War II, thanks to the unique wartime factors, their food surpluses have diminished steadily since then. In many cases, they have turned to deficits, yet... Modern agricultural technology gives no country any excuse for being in a food deficit position, save for very small and densely populated industrial nations such as England and Japan. Certainly no country whose human resources are primarily devoted to agriculture, as are those of Latin America and many in Asia, should have slipped from food surplus to food deficit status since World War II. This is not at all to say that all these countries need is to import sophisticated agricultural technology. Rather, this technology is irrelevant to countries whose institutions of land tenure, food pricing, and distribution block the application of technology. Today's international lending agencies have failed to help bring about the needed transformation of these institutions. Partners in Backwardness how World Bank operations are skewed to aid the United States. During 1946 to 1952, the World Bank's prime objective was more to help finance the reconstruction of Europe than to aid the United States directly. It was understood that many of the capital goods and services purchased under bank programs would be supplied by U.S. exporters, but funding for these activities also was raised largely in the United States. The bank provided Europe with some $700 million of loans, about one-half of overall World Bank lending during these seven years. From 1952 onward, the bank's lending activities expanded and were concentrated in the less developed countries, financing to 1969 some $9.8 billion of exports from the industrial nations to these countries, about one-third from the United States. During the decade 1960 to 1969, bank operations contributed an average $240 million per year to the U.S. balance of payments on current account for a total of $2.6 billion net inflow since the bank had been founded. This sum included net payments to the United States by the World Bank exclusive of special transfer payments from Europe to the United States through the sale of dollar-denominated bond issues that absorbed surplus dollars held by Europeans. Half of this $2.6 billion consisted of long-term World Bank investments in the United States. Goods purchased in the United States by bank-financed programs totaled $3.3 billion from the bank's inception, and interest payments to the United States and its citizens added another $860 million. From the U.S. point of view, its total public and private investment in the bank, approximating $2.4 billion at the close of 1969, was therefore an excellent commitment. On balance of payments account, U.S. receipts from bank operations approximated 2.1 times its investments in the institution. The bank thus was not exactly an instrument of altruistic American generosity. The aggregate return on its total net investment position in the bank exceeded 100% from the bank's inception through 1969. See Table 8.1. U.S. officials openly acknowledged the degree to which the bank's operations had benefited the United States. It was this advantage to which Robert McNamara pointed when he resigned his post as U.S. Secretary of Defense to become the World Bank's president in 1968. 
In his maiden speech as president, he stated that a new function of its operations would be to transfer funds from payment surplus to payments deficit countries, i.e., from Europe to the United States, to finance the war that he had administered and was still draining the U.S. balance of payments. McNamara's appointment may be viewed as an extension of his authority as strategist of Pax Americana's expansion from national to global scope. Having enlarged the Pentagon's role in American society to one of dominance, he was elevated to the position as head of the world's major development lending institution to lay down explicit social policy conditions to be adopted by applicants for World Bank loans. To assert that he personally transformed the bank's operating philosophy into a vehicle for U.S. Cold War aims is not to put forth an argument ad hominem in view of the linking of World Bank operations to Pax Americana strategy after he took office and in light of the convergence of the views of the reports of the Peterson and Pearson commissions and McNamara's maiden speech, the question must be raised as to whether his appointment epitomized the final subversion of World Bank operations to U.S. Cold War policies for the 1970s. For in the same way that U.S. foreign aid became increasingly military and paramilitary in character under his regime as Secretary of Defense, more and more employed to prop up politically friendly anti-democratic governments, the resources of the World Bank were mobilized as a vehicle for militant U.S. policy abroad. McNamara faced very real institutional problems upon joining the bank. He took over an institution unable to expand its lending indefinitely under the constraints imposed by its 1944 Articles of Agreement. The bank had been able to borrow long-term funds at less than 3% in the early years of its lending, but found itself obliged to pay nearly 7% by 1968. This burdened the aid-borrowing countries with interest charges nearly three times as high as those of the 1940s, as loans were recycled upon maturity. Their interest rates increased. For relevant table, see page 228 of the text. As noted above, the bank was permitted to lend only for self-amortizing projects, that is, for projects that would generate direct hard currency earnings, either by increasing exports or displacing imports in amounts sufficient to amortize the bank's loan and meet its interest charges. Fewer such projects became available as the creditworthiness of aid-borrowing countries declined in the face of more and more of their balance of payments inflows being earmarked to repay past borrowings. These countries found their debt servicing costs increasing, widening their net balance of payments deficits. The more they borrowed to industrialize, the greater their adverse trade balances became, especially on food account. As early as 1963, the year in which McNamara's predecessor, George Woods, became the bank's president, it was recognized that there was a scarcity of projects qualifying for investment on the bank's hard loan terms. That led Mr. Woods to press for supplementary financing for the bank's soft loan affiliate, the International Development Association, IDA. But the bank member governments elected not to provide the IDA with the funds it required. That was largely the result of growing disillusion at the deteriorating economic position of the aid-borrowing countries. McNamara observed in his speech to the bank's September 1968 annual meeting that blatant mismanagement of economies, diversion of scarce resources to wars of nationalism, perpetuation of discriminatory systems of social behavior and income distribution have been all too common in these countries. But it is equally clear that the political will to foster development has weakened, is weakening further, and needs desperately to be strengthened. 
Faced with these problems, McNamara effected a fundamental policy change in bank operations. Without calling attention to the fact, he renounced Article 4, Section 10 of the bank's charter, which prohibited it from exerting political pressure upon member nations to alter their social institutions. He also, in effect, rescinded the article obligating it to make loans for productive, i.e., self-amortizing purposes only. Article 4 had been intended to limit the kind of conflict of interest between borrower and lender that often characterizes bilateral intergovernmental lending. Such loans often are granted in exchange for political or military favors that are not in the best interests of the borrowing country. But McNamara perceived that the bank's inability to lay down social-political preconditions for its loans had been a major factor in the disappointing results of its lending. It was obliged to work within the existing contexts of politically repressive, polarized economies. The hard loan provision requiring each project to amortize its own cost had been designed to avoid squandering funds on showcase projects. But the effect of this project-by-project -project approach was to force the bank into a narrow view of economic development that weighed only the immediate internal economies of projects under consideration to the neglect of the external economies inherent in development lending. The bank's move under McNamara toward viewing the overall financial effects of projects and toward program lending in general thus represented a tendency toward a more dynamic evaluation of the effects of its loan projects. In economic jargon, a transition from partial equilibrium to general equilibrium analysis. These policy changes were potentially salutary, dropping the constraints of self-amortization of loans and non-interference in the social structure of aid clients broadened the scope of World Bank operations as it entered the 1970s. But unfortunately, Mr. McNamara chose a Malthusian policy of population control as the principal vehicle by which to introduce these changes. The bank's first course, he announced, would be to let the developing nations know the extent to which rapid population growth slows down their potential development, and that, in consequence, the optimum employment of the world's scarce development funds requires attention to this problem. In this statement, he declared his intention that the use of bank funds would be conditional upon population control in borrowing countries, even where such a policy was repugnant to their governments and often to their dominant religious beliefs, as well as pressures for social reform. Although Mr. McNamara observed that outmoded social institutions represented a check to the expansion of food output needed to sustain population growth at then-current rates, he did not go so far as to propose that these institutions be transformed, particularly land tenure. Just the opposite. He advocated that population growth be curtailed to match the modest rate of gain in food output, which existing institutional and political constraints would permit. Population should be cut back to the food supply in countries that were told to move away from food production to plantation export crops. McNamara's speech was widely popularized in the more racist Anglo-Saxon nations, but was generally received with misgivings in Roman Catholic countries and in non-white nations that saw the bank's racist Malthusian message. An illustration of the anti-American attitudes emerging already prior to his speech appeared in the editorial comment of the November 1968 issue of Communication Social, 
a monthly periodical published by the Latin American Bishops' Conference, C-E-L-A-M, summing up world press reactions to Pope Paul's August 1968 encyclical Human Life Opposing Birth Control, delivered just one month before McNamara's initial World Bank presidential speech, the editorial asked, Where did the greatest opposition to the encyclical come from? From the rich, from the powerful nations, defending lucrative interests in underdeveloped countries. Footnote 32. Quoted in a review of Catholic opposition to Malthusianism, Eugene K. Colhane's They'd Rather Decide for Themselves, America, 120, May 24, 1969, page 621 FF. See also Abraham Gullion, Malthusianism is Not for Latin America, Vispera, Montevideo, Uruguay, March 1969. End of footnote 32. The resulting clash of views ushered in a long-brewing debate as to the assumptions and values inherent in proposed economic development. Mr. McNamara seized the initiative in August 1968 by appointing Canada's recent Prime Minister, Lester Pearson, to head a commission whose conclusions McNamara correctly anticipated would endorse his Malthusianism. The commission's report, Partners in Development, was published one year later. It proposed a ten-point program. 1. To create a framework for free and equitable international trade. But free trade is essentially a doctrine of the status quo. Its workings tend to perpetuate existing patterns of comparative advantage and disadvantage. In advocating free trade, the Pearson Report, like the Peterson Report, would prevent less developed countries and food deficit countries in particular, from shaping their own development. They must not follow the path of transformation that enabled the United States to industrialize in the face of European competition in the 19th century. They must not insulate their low-productivity economies from existing international competition that must necessarily swamp their domestic producers in the absence of tariffs or other barriers to imports. They must be passive rather than active with regard to their trade patterns and the economic institutions responsible for determining them. 2. To promote mutually beneficial flows of foreign private investment. Aid recipient countries must provide a general climate for private activity. Disincentives to such activity should be identified and removed wherever consistent with legitimate national goals. In other words, the main growth sectors of these countries must be permitted to fall into foreign hands. The consequent outflow of profits, interest, depreciation, and amortization funds, insurance, and reinsurance must be permitted to contribute to the now chronic payments deficits that have stifled their attempts at development. Reviewing the Pearson Report, Charles Elliott observed that it rightly urges that the auction that has developed for foreign private funds is not in the best interest of the developing countries themselves, though it misses the important analytical point that such incentives distort the choice of technologies and the direction of capital intensity, but does not see that this auction had developed precisely because some developing countries find that they need a consistently increasing inflow of foreign funds to offset the outflow resulting from the repatriation of profits generated by already existing foreign capital. 
Footnote 33, Review of Partners in Development, S-O-D-E-P-A-X, Committee on Society, Development, and Peace, Mimeo, October 8th, 1969, page 11, end of footnote 33. This foreign exchange outflow also is caused by the aid recipient's debt service charges on past borrowings. Given today's rules of international finance, aid lending leads to a loss of commercial autonomy for less developed countries and to their resources being turned over to foreign ownership. 3. To establish a better partnership, a clearer purpose, and a greater coherence in development aid. But partnership in what? In progress or backwardness? And on whose terms? On these touchy points, the report was discreetly silent. There is very little suggestion in the report that aid can in fact be obstructive to development and even growth, noted Elliot. Even in the discussion of food aid, it is hard to perceive that the Commission has considered seriously the mounting volume of evidence that food aid has acted as a real constraint on the development of agriculture in the food deficit countries. While the report seeks to explode the myth that aid has been wasteful in the sense of misappropriated or misapplied, it comes nowhere near to discussing the way it has been used as a political tool to keep in power obstructive and regressive regimes, particularly in Latin America. Footnote 34, Ibid, page 7. 4. To increase the volume of aid. The world had become rich enough to afford the economic bondage of entire countries whose vested interests are supported by donations from the wealthier nations. It was as if the issue was one of income distribution among nations, not productive capacity. The report recommended that 1% of the wealthier nations' GNP be given, by which they meant lent abroad at interest. The Pearson Commission apparently felt no embarrassment at using the term aid throughout the report with no qualifying quotation marks around it. Interest-bearing debt, military assistance, U.S. export promotion, and administrative overhead are lumped together as aid. 5. To meet the problem of mounting debts. These debts were caused in large part by the failure of past aid lending and the misshapen profiles of development it had helped foster. The report did not advocate a moratorium on aid debts. It was no more ready to see them wiped off the books than the United States would agree in 1931 to excise the inter-ally World War I debts. Instead, the Pearson report proposed to constrain future economic evolution in indebted food deficit countries by their existing debt burden and food dependency, and indeed, to make this burden heavier. If future debt crises are to be forestalled, sound financial policies must be pursued, and the terms of aid must be lenient. By sound financial policies, the Commission meant that deflationary austerity programs must be imposed on countries suffering heavy debt burdens, even though such policies block the use of expansionary monetary policies to promote such countries' growth. The stabilization plans recommended by the IMF and World Bank missions to Argentina and Turkey in 1958 contributed to the fall of governments in both countries. Such programs soon became causes of national discontent wherever applied. 
They place international payments balance above the goal of domestic growth and employment. There was a striking contrast between the Pearson Commission's call for balance of payments equilibrium in debtor countries and the full employment policies pursued by the United States without regard to the massive deficits resulting from such policies. A study conducted by the U.S. Government Accounting Office, GAO, concluded that during 1966 to 1970, the World Bank took in more funds from 20 of its less developed member countries than it dispersed. In other words, its collection of interest and principal from these countries exceeded the new loans extended to them. For the 72 less developed countries taken as a whole, the bank dispersed an average $535 million a year but repayments of principal and interest averaged $427 million, leaving an average net transfer of only $108 million annually. In view of this, the GAO concluded, the World Bank has not been a significant factor in the net transfer of resources to developing countries. Footnote 35, Lag in Disbursements, World Bank Criticized, on LDC's Operations, Journal of Commerce, February 20th, 1973. In part, this was because of a bureaucratic lag in loan disbursements. As of June 30th, 1972, the World Bank had accumulated nearly $4.1 billion in undisbursed project funds. Most of this was on deposit in U.S. banks, benefiting the U.S. balance of payments rather than that of the aid-borrowing countries. This $4.1 billion represented nearly a fourfold growth in undisbursed funds in only four years, representing what the GAO termed the slow growth of project implementation. 6. To make aid administration more effective. The Commission recommended that aid be freed of tied aid requirements, but this found no ready response in the United States. If it did indeed untie its aid, the result would have been a deterioration of its balance of payments, which the economy hardly could sustain. The degree to which the United States tied its aid even to ostensibly multinational organizations, such as the Asian Development Bank, was not broadly recognized. The amended Asian Development Bank Act provided that all of the $100 million U.S. contribution to that bank's special fund, its soft loan window, be tied. The United States' special resources may be expended by the bank only for procurement in the United States of goods produced in or services supplied from the United States except that the United States government, in consultation with the National Advisory Council on International Monetary and Financial Policies, may allow eligibility for procurement in other member countries from the United States special resources if he, the U.S. governor of the bank, determines that such procurement eligibility would materially improve the ability of the bank to carry out the objectives of its special funds resources and would be compatible with the international financial position of the United States. Footnote 36, Section 1, Paragraph 1, Section 13C, 
Further elaboration on this source can be found on page 234 of the text. End of footnote 36. Loan terms were hardening for U.S. subscriptions to international lending organizations, as Representative Henry Roos of Wisconsin observed. Looking at the Inter-American Development Bank in the early 1960s, the first years of the bank, for every $1 of Latin American money the United States contributed, $11 to the soft-loaned resources of the bank. In 1964, the ratio was $1 to $8. In 1965, $1 to $5. And in 1968, $1 to $3. Under the provisions of this bill, this ratio would be further reduced to $1 to $2. Footnote 37. U.S. Congressional Record, September 14, 1970, page H, 8,648, during the hearings on H.R. 18306. End of footnote 37. 7. To redirect technical assistance. The report paid lip service to the fact that strong institutional support is requisite for technical assistance to have a positive effect, particularly in the fields of agriculture and education. But its attempt to portray agricultural productivity as evolving rapidly under the impulse of modern technology was misleading. Not only did it ignore the problem of the rural exodus, but as Mr. Elliott observed, by being sufficiently vague because aggregative, the report can sound more optimistic than a disaggregated analysis of the facts would really justify. Another more alarming example is the way in which the Green Revolution is described. All the figures quoted are from climatically good years, and the comparisons are drawn with climatically bad years. Similarly, the report nowhere allows for inflation and can therefore make optimistic comparisons of money values in the future, ignoring real values. Elliot suspects the reasoning to be that, to have emphasized the pessimistic appreciation of the situation would merely have strengthened the disillusionment. Footnote 38, Review of Partners in Development, page 5, end of footnote 38. 8. To slow the growth of population. Nations must follow Malthusian policies in order to qualify for future bank loans. Aid-givers cannot be indifferent to whether population problems receive the attention they require, and both bilateral and international agencies should press for adequate analysis of these problems and their bearing on development programs, in particular social policies which reduce the dependence on the family as the sole source of security, would lessen the need and desire for large families. It seemed that aid recipients would have to abolish their welfare systems so as to stop subsidizing childbearing. The less capable their institutions at sustaining their economic growth, the more they must cut back their population growth so as to live within the constraints imposed by their political institutions. Their prescribed retardation of population growth thus becomes a direct function of their institutional obsolescence. They must break down their traditional family structures in contrast to the social justice programs pursued in the United States and other creditor nations. 9. To revitalize aid to education and research. 
This was a valid element of the report's advocated strategy, but it was not attainable within the confines of a global open economy. The problem is that education and research must be financed either by the private sector or the government sector. Financing an increase in public education normally requires tax increases, adding to the cost structure of these countries. Unless these taxes are levied on the land and monopolies held by the vested interests in these countries, interests supported by U.S. policies. So, this element of the Pearson Report may be paraphrased as, If we had some ham, we could have some ham and eggs. If we had some eggs. It does not explain why neither ham nor eggs are available. 10. To strengthen the multilateral aid system by moving from bilateral to multilateral aid. The report did not acknowledge the degree to which ostensibly multilateral institutions, the World Bank, IDA, International Finance Corporation, IFC, and IMF, are dominated by United States and British government appointees who steered their course to meet the dictates of U.S. world strategy. At first sight, one might be tempted to laud the proposal that balance of payment surplus nations transfer a given portion of their surplus to the debtor countries to ease their debt problems up to, say... $5 billion per year in the form of special drawing rights transfers, as was proposed by monetary authorities. However, under the U.S. plan, the main beneficiary of this income transfer was the United States itself. SDRs were created by countries' payments deficits, mainly those of the United States and Britain. Thus, the foreign exchange resources of certain creditor nations, mainly continental Europe and Japan, would be transferred to Latin America and other debtor regions, largely to enable them to repay dollar borrowings and buy dollar goods and services. A triangular flow would be set in motion from Europe and Japan to the debtor countries on SDR aid account, and then to the United States, in the form of earnings and amortization remitted on U.S. investments and past aid lending. That would help finance the U.S. payments deficit caused at the time of the Pearson Report by the government's military spending. On February 20th, 1971, the World Bank borrowed nearly half a billion dollars, 135 billion yen, from Japan at 6.74% interest, its largest single borrowing to that date. Of this sum, about one-fifth was a rollover of an earlier 28 billion yen borrowing from the Bank of Japan. Repayment would have obliged the World Bank to transfer funds out of dollars into yen. Its new borrowing, by contrast, was for conversion from yen to dollars. Instead of U.S. investors having to finance dollar exports to World Bank borrowers, the Central Bank of Japan supplied the credits. Footnote 39 World Bank Gets Biggest Ever Loan from Japan. The Financial Times, February 21st, 1971. In effect, the Pearson Report proposed that loan activities be conditional on them being of measurable assistance to the United States. This was nothing new. It was a condition that had characterized the World Bank virtually from its inception. The amounts loaned to aid borrowing countries were massive, yet many aspects of these loans worked against the recipient country's development rather than promoting it. 
Bank loans were concentrated on the export sectors of borrowers with little practical concern for their domestic sectors. Such lending promoted expansion in minerals and other raw materials exports to the industrial nations creating dual economies in which modernized export sectors existed as enclaves side by side backward agricultural sectors the result was that food deficits consumed more foreign exchange than was provided by minerals and plantation exports the world bank's theory was that expansion of export capabilities would permit the importation of agricultural and industrial consumer items while generating incomes within the borrower countries. This, presumably, would help build up markets for local agriculture and consumer goods industries, stabilizing domestic consumption in the bank's client nations and simultaneously enriching them industrially. The theory would have been impeccable if only the facts had been different from what they were. Loans as inputs might indeed have produced the effects thought likely. But what were the effects of repaying these loans? That question was not recognized as being important. It was as if loans were a species of gift. Hence the term aid loans, without any sense that the term was an oxymoron. Their repayment with interest was assumed to be smaller in hard currency terms than the export incomes they would generate. That view involved treating countries as if they were corporations whose cash returns on the use of borrowed funds could be depended to be in excess of the stipulated outflows for debt, retirement, and interest charges. But it was precisely the absence of this characteristic that distinguished debtor countries. Large capital inputs into their non-consumption sectors did not induce a corresponding increase in output by their consumer goods sectors. Instead, imports were stimulated. Meanwhile, World Bank loans contributed to an overproduction of raw materials exports that held down their prices. These effects significantly reduced the effective capacity of these countries to meet their debt service obligations out of increased export receipts. Another effect of sudden industrialization was to draw population from the countryside to the cities in search of employment, but the growth of industrial hiring was insufficient to absorb this rural exodus. However miserable their previous standard of living was, whether as farmers or as peons, at least they had been self-sustaining. Drawn from the land by the magnet of industry that could not absorb them at their rate of flight, they ceased to be self-sufficient and became drains on national resources. Meanwhile, the foodstuffs they once had produced ceased to be grown. That caused a demand for more imports, now of food products that accelerated with the passage of time and the continued flight of people from the land. Food prices soared in country after country as the flight to the towns reduced agricultural output while increasing market demand for staples. The effect of sudden industrialization thus was to destabilize the economies of developing nations by reducing their capacity for self-sufficiency and, by their resulting inflations, increasing the volume and prices of imports as their exchange rates declined. As events have turned out, technological aid has helped to displace rural peasants and to throw them into urban slums. Food deficit economies have become increasingly unstable, and in many cases increasingly militarist as well. These dynamics help explain why annual debt service costs of the developing countries grew by 1968 to $4.7 billion, equal to about 20% of their aggregate exports as compared to only about 10% at the start of the 1960s. Footnote 40. 
For detailed statistics on debt servicing costs to the aid borrowing countries, see the World Bank's annual report for 1969, especially pages 49 to 52 and 72 to 79, end of footnote 40. The aid borrowing countries had reached the limit of their creditworthiness in terms of hard currencies. Debt service charges for interest and principal payments on past aid borrowings had to be met out at deteriorating net balances on their commercial trade and services accounts. To refinance their outstanding debts so as to remain at least nominally solvent, these countries were compelled to change direction in their economic growth, limiting expansion of their agriculture and consumer goods industries in order to concentrate still further on their export sectors. Focusing their economies on foreign debt service requirements instead of on the domestic needs and aspirations of their peoples constituted a form of forced savings via austerity. The result was a warped pattern of growth in country after country. Economic expansion was encouraged only in areas that generated the means of foreign debt service so as to be in a position to borrow enough to finance more growth in areas thought to generate yet further means of foreign debt service and so on ad infinitum. On an international scale, Joe Hills, we go to work to get the cash to buy the food to get the strength, to go to work to get the cash to buy the food to get the strength, to go to work to get the cash to buy the food, became reality. The World Bank was pauperizing the countries that it had been designed in theory to assist. Its functioning and its avowed purpose contradicted each other. This self-defeating character of World Bank and U.S. State Department foreign aid policy was not merely a result of faulty post-Kinsian or other superficial views of economic development, less innocently. It was the product in large part of specific U.S. Cold War aims, above all, that of preserving the U.S.-centered international status quo. Economic reasoning that challenged the viability of the status quo was rejected out of hand by the U.S. government and its aid-lending instrumentalities. The difficulty in replacing outmoded aid and development doctrines with more appropriate strategies lies in the fact that sounder strategies would run counter to U.S. strategic aims of keeping foreign countries dependent on itself. Development of a thriving third world bloc is manifestly at odds with every element of strategy of the militant American nation-state. Thus, even though a more effective development philosophy can be formulated, as its outlines have been, it is wishful thinking to assume that it could gain sponsorship by the World Bank or the U.S. State Department. Freeing indebted food deficit countries from their yoke of obsolete political and social systems, therefore, must entail more than just a re-education of U.S. strategists. It needs direct political action by the developing countries to thwart their strategies. The ultimate action would be for these countries to withdraw from the World Bank, GATT, and IMF altogether and to form a new set of development institutions run by themselves in their own self-interest. Until such a set of institutions is developed, they can benefit only incidentally, never directly, from U.S. and European economic growth. They will be aided only to the extent that their growth patterns conform to rigid concepts as to what constitutes U.S. or European self-interest. For the developing countries, capitulation to foreign dictation guised in neoclassical growth doctrines offers no promise of economic or social evolution. According to most economic models, any capital input tends to increase economic growth. 
The neoclassical model computes a capital-to-output ratio according to which the dollar value of existing aggregate capital is balanced against dollar GNP. Each average or marginal dollar of new capital inputs is associated or correlated with X dollars of added output. This approach hypothesizes that incremental foreign direct investments and aid dollars contribute to the GNP of foreign countries by a multiplier based on the national capital-to-output ratio. If a nation's output is four times its measured capital resources, then each additional $1 of capital is expected to contribute $4 to its GNP. Yet, in 1970, two authors published a study indicating that the opposite hypothesis is closer to the truth. In general, foreign assistance is not associated with progress and indeed may deter it. If the growth which a nation achieves or fails to achieve is related to the assistance it receives, one finds that there is no support for the view that aid encourages growth. Taking the average rate of growth of GNP over the years 1957 to 1964 for the 12 Latin American countries for which figures are available, we find that it is inversely related to the ratio of foreign aid to GNP. Footnote 41, K.B. Griffin and J.L. Enos, Foreign Assistance, Objectives and Consequences, Economic Development and Cultural Change, 18, April 1970, page 317, F. End of footnote 41. If anything, the authors conclude, aid may have retarded development by leading to lower domestic savings by distorting the composition of investment and thereby raising the capital output ratio by frustrating the emergence of an indigenous entrepreneurial class and by inhibiting institutional reforms. Footnote 42, Ibid, page 326. End of footnote 42. Why has this inverse correlation between economic growth and foreign aid loans occurred? One reason the authors suggest is that foreign private capital tends to preempt the economy's growth areas, and aid may reduce the urgency for governments to foster an investment climate to mobilize domestic resources. Moreover, governments finding abundant resources abroad expand their consumption too, and refrain from raising taxes. In other words, aid frequently becomes a substitute for tax reforms. Footnote 43, Ibid, page 321, end of footnote 43. But the major adverse effect of foreign aid is less direct. A typical diplomatic precondition for U.S. or World Bank aid is that no move be taken to protect the client economy or challenge vested interests, especially those of landowners or foreign investors. Perhaps the most important reason why foreign assistance frequently hinders growth is that it prevents institutional changes, in part because the lending country may not accept the wisdom of such changes, in part because aid enables the borrowing country to postpone them. Such reforms as changes in land tenure patterns are not instituted. Foreign aid tends to strengthen the status quo. It enables those in power to evade and avoid fundamental reforms. It does little more than patch plaster on the deteriorating social edifice. Footnote 44 Ibid, page 325. Questions of the effectiveness of U.S. State Department and World Bank strategies of economic development abroad thus resolve themselves ultimately into political questions above all about the retarding effect of loan programs on positive institutional reforms in debtor food deficit countries. Food, population growth, and economic reform. 
Shrinking per capita food production in third world countries has elicited two responses, one radical, the other Malthusian. The World Bank and the United States chose Malthusianism as an alternative to radicalism immediately upon Mr. McNamara taking the reins. To many development planners, the solution to declining agricultural self-sufficiency does not lie in further emphasis on mining petroleum or industrial manufacturers to earn the funds to purchase more food imports. The indicated path lies rather in a structural transformation of agriculture through methods similar to those employed successfully in the United States since the 1930s, namely educational extension services to promote an evolving agricultural technology, rural credit banks, and price support programs to finance it, and subsidized or at least regulated transport and crop distribution services. In most of the impoverished countries, such patterns are not possible under the existing exploitative patterns of land tenure and related fiscal institutions. The required path toward economic transformation of the countryside is thus political and social. In many cases, it is a problem of social and political evolution, for only by breaking down institutional impediments to modernized agriculture can these countries hope to attain self-sufficiency in food. To U.S. State Department strategists, the World Bank, Ford Foundation planners, and much of the U.S. academic community, failure of the impoverished countries to extend their agriculture to meet the needs of growing populations foretells a rising revolutionary pressure for social transformation with all of its attendant dangers of economic isolation. This school of thought does not look directly at the cause of declining self-sufficiency in food production. It accepts it as a fact, effectively as a result of natural law, as if nature or technology is at fault, not political institutions. The response has been a political repression of the left and of land reform advocates generally, not a shift to modernize backward agricultural sectors and dysfunctional fiscal and related economic policies. If existing trends in farm productivity in developing countries persist, the political effect must indeed be revolution at some point. As Secretary of Defense, McNamara reminisced in his September 1968 speech, I have observed and spoken publicly about the connection between world poverty and unstable relations among nations. But instead of advocating a transformation of the institutions responsible for this poverty, he advised that population growth in agriculturally retarded countries be curtailed within the limits imposed by the poverty he had just decried. For a man in the position of heading the world's major development lending agency, McNamara remained strangely quiet about all the aspects of socioeconomic transformation, save those of birth control and the technological revolution. He made no major remarks concerning archaic systems of land tenure in backward countries, farm credits, crop distribution patterns, the structural inadequacy of existing educational and tax systems, or other socioeconomic impediments to agricultural evolution, by stressing population control as the unique area in which the bank was to exert pressure for social change in impoverished debtor countries, McNamara preempted the World Bank from involving itself in the agricultural modernization of these economies. The food problem, which is essentially one of social institutional backwardness, was construed as a population problem, with birth control and labor displacing agribusiness technology proposed as palliatives rather than as complementary parts of a broader strategy to transform the economic and social systems of agriculturally backward countries. 
The effect of this Malthusianism was to debar the World Bank and the U.S. foreign aid program from playing any role in pursuing new policies to correct economic backwardness. The shortcoming of the bank's applied theories lay in the assumption that technological and financial inputs by themselves suffice to foster growth even in the absence of an institutional environment within which these inputs may be utilized productively. Since the 1970s, the bank had been entrapped in the view that the effect of poverty, a high rate of population growth that exacerbates poverty, can be attacked without addressing its causes in the form of social backwardness and institutional limitations on the capacity to develop the soil. Aid proposals were put forth as alternatives to social and economic modernization, not as means to this end. The ex-Secretary of Defense might have suggested that needed social reforms should be nurtured by a new lending authority established for that specific purpose, perhaps by a radically transformed World Bank. He might have theorized that the tendency of the rate of population growth to decline steadily with rising per capita incomes in developed countries would repeat itself in developing countries. Instead, Mr. McNamara chose the Malthusian course of advocating that population be fitted to existing food resources, not that food resources be expanded to meet the needs of existing or growing populations. One need not involve oneself in the dispute over whether family planning birth control by mechanical or chemical means or other aspects of the birth control issue re represent a form of genocide. What is significant is that there is an essential difference between birth control employed as a matter of personal conscience or choice and birth control as a national and international policy of governments imposed upon peoples for political strategic ends. Whatever the merits of birth control as a matter of personal choice, they become degraded as soon as birth control becomes a political device to prevent needed social changes of a basic character. Demands for birth control by the World Bank are principally for the antisocial purpose of deterring political change. The World Bank is essentially an American instrument, and the United States is a food surplus nation threatened with loss of foreign markets for farm products as modernization of European agriculture proceeds. For the World Bank to finance such institutional reforms in developing nations as would lead them toward self-sufficiency on food account would run counter to American interests. U.S. farm surpluses would become unmanageable as the overseas market for U.S. farm products dwindled. To be blunt, the World Bank prefers perpetuation of world poverty to the development of adequate overseas capacity to feed the peoples of developing countries. There is a yet more subtle point to be considered. Mineral resources represent diminishing assets. It is in the interest of developing peoples to conserve such assets for their own ultimate use in manufacturing industries, as these develop within the borders of nations rich in raw materials but backward in general development. In the short run, such domestic use of mineral resources is not possible because of inadequate industrial capital and consumer markets. The specter is thus raised that in the long run, these countries will find themselves depleted of resources as World Bank programs accelerate the exploitation of their mineral deposits for use by other nations. The long-term prospect is thus for these countries to be unable to earn foreign exchange on export account sufficient to finance their required food imports. The World Bank has foreseen this. Its proposals for population limitation in these countries is a cold-blooded attempt to extort from them their mineral resources without assuming responsibility for the sustenance of these peoples once the industrialized West 
has stripped them of their fuel and mineral deposits. Consider the alternative that World Bank loans and technical assistance foster agricultural self-sufficiency among these peoples. Assume substantial success in this endeavor in, say, a decade. Thereafter, exportation of fuels and minerals would become a matter of choice by these peoples, not a necessity. Such export might continue at current levels, it might increase, or it might diminish. The decision to conserve or to dissipate exhaustible resources would be autonomous, a matter of choice, by these peoples and their governments, not something imposed upon them from outside. The decision about desirable levels of population also would be a local matter, not something demanded among the terms on which capital resources are obtained from foreign suppliers. The peoples now dependent would escape that trap, but this is not intended or desired either by the World Bank or by the government of the United States and its client regimes. It is only a seeming paradox that the World Bank simultaneously fosters the development of resources in impoverished countries while demanding reduction of their population's rate of increase. What seems to be planned by the West is a reduction in the rate of population growth in these countries, sufficient to permit the continued dissipation of their irreplaceable resources while postponing indefinitely their total immiseration. In the estimation of the World Bank, the ideal eventual population for these countries is the number of people that can be sustained from their domestic agriculture above the basic poverty level once the North has taken away the last of their recoverable minerals. The ideal short-run population is the number needed to operate the enterprises whose intent is precisely to exhaust the resources of these countries, and meanwhile, that can be sustained by imported foodstuffs paid for by the minerals irretrievably lost by exportation. The issue, therefore, is not a higher rate of growth in population than in resources. It is that populations in impoverished and politically backward countries today, whatever the rate of development of their mineral resources, exceed the number of people that eventually can be fed once these minerals have been exhausted. The logic of the situation, dictated by the callousness of the North, is that populations in these countries must decline in symmetry with the approaching, no matter how gradual, exhaustion of their minerals. Whether the United States and the World Bank were led to this objective by their intention to preserve the obsolete and oppressive militaristic class institutions in developing nations, or whether they have been led to the preservation of these institutions in order that the mineral resources of these countries can continue to be stripped from them, may be a matter for conjecture. But the facts remain regarding U.S. exploitation of the debtor countries, their resources, and peoples. The United States is unwilling to limit its control over foreign, natural resources. It is in surplus on farm products account, but is unwilling to limit its agriculture accordingly, and it is unwilling to alleviate the chronic debt crisis of third world countries. The customary pro and con arguments regarding birth control in these countries are blind to the realities of the situation. Reduction of population growth might well prove desirable, but not for the reasons advanced by the World Bank and the United States to the impoverished countries. Balanced economic development with ample sustenance from thriving agriculture is the prerequisite not only for healthy evolution of these countries, but also for postulation of what size of population is desirable for them. It bears repeating that beyond some point above the poverty level, population growth rates tend to diminish as per capita real incomes 
rise. To assume that this is something peculiar to Western peoples is absurd. The anti-Malthusian argument that beyond a point resources tend to increase more rapidly than population is the universal experience of every developed country. The Malthus doctrine holds true only in conditions where per capita food resources are so low as to leave no surplus of human energy to devote to pursuits above the mere gathering and cultivation of crops. Malthusian advocacy by the World Bank is thus a pronouncement that the bank intends to leave the economies of impoverished countries in the eventual condition of zero surplus human energy espousal of malthusian doctrines at first in u s foreign aid programs and soon afterward by the world bank is not surprising it is in keeping with the evolving purpose of u s centered aid programs the motive for urging and even demanding population control as the remedy for malnutrition of average citizens in politically backward countries rests on the same grounds as those of malthus in the time of england's poor law debates deliberate social retardation of the many to serve the vested interests of the few in today's case the few tend to be foreigners and foreign commercial and financial interests including those associated with the u s economy's own minerals import and food export requirements foreign populations are to supply raw materials and exchange them for u s food exports not grow their own food and consume their fuels and minerals themselves or work them into manufactured goods to compete with u s producers Beyond this narrow economic interest is the more ancient specter that a large increase in world population may bring into question the balance of international, military, and political power. Centuries ago, mercantilist theorizing viewed population growth largely as a military input. A similar view persists. Nothing is more menacing to world security testified secretary of the treasury henry morgenthau to the senate in its nineteen forty five hearings on the world bank then to have the less developed countries comprising more than half the population of the world ranged an economic battle against the less populous but industrially more advanced nations of the west footnote forty five senate hearings page eleven end of footnote forty five it was thus historically logical that secretary of defense robert mcnamara should become president of the world bank upon leaving his position as architect of america's war in southeast asia jose de castro a brazilian sociologist demographer and former president of the united nations food and agricultural organization fao published remarks in slasc the monthly organ of the latin american christian workers confederation praising the papal encyclical human life as the most progressive the church had yet published the united states imposes birth control not to help the poor countries no one believes any more in its disinterested aid programs but because that is its strategic defense policy we must realize that the pill is north america's best guarantee of continuing a dominant minority if ever the third world achieves normal development washington's roman empire will disappear footnote 46 quoted in colhane they'd rather decide for themselves end of footnote 46 this interpretation poses a problem of political morality for liberals in the developed nations concerned over poverty in their own and other lands they have seized upon regulation of population size as an immediate solution to the prevalence of malnutrition 
the easy kind of liberalism, with its hope for ready-to-hand technocratic solutions to social problems, has led them to support the major way in which liberal institutions among backward peoples can be prevented from evolving. Their support for higher living standards for all has been exploited into de facto support of the oppressive and militarist regimes in backward countries. They failed to perceive that among the many exploitations in this imperfect world is the exploitation of their very morality, that which in their fiber compels them on the course of liberalism, that specious tactic of capturing liberal social ideals to support repressive neoliberal regimes has helped mobilize the Malthusianism and free trade promoted by the World Bank and the U.S. government. American liberals and open marketeers have been its unwitting allies, and thereby the allies, of the world's most reactionary regimes. End of chapter 8 Super-Imperialism The Economic Strategy of American Empire by Michael Hudson Chapter 9 The Imperialism of U.S. Foreign Aid Let their lives be saved, lest the wrath of the Lord be stirred up against us. But so let them live, as to serve the whole multitude, in hewing wood and drawing water. Joshua Chapter 9 Verses 20-21 through 21. Most Americans are under the impression that their nation's foreign aid programs supply poorer countries with needed resources, as outright gifts, or on easy credit terms, at very low prices. But in travesty of economic terminology, any loan extended by the U.S. government to any foreign country is classified as aid, ipso facto, even when the balance of payments effect is from aid recipients to donors, and even when the aid disrupts the recipient's economies, it is treated as aid, as long as the loan or seeming gift is deemed to help the economy of the United States, with some kind of quid pro quo. Since the 1960s, a major aim of foreign aid has been to help the U.S. balance of payments and U.S. producers. And not only the incidental effect of U.S. aid, but its stated purpose has been to restrict rather than enlarge the capacity for evolution of aid-dependent countries toward greater self-reliance. The self-interest that characterizes U.S. aid is most blatant in the case of food aid, dumping U.S. crop surpluses on countries. The effect is to reduce recipient countries' food prices, making the farming of grain and other U.S. export crops unremunerative for local farmers. Payments made by the government to U.S. farmers to produce crops that neither can be consumed at home nor sold abroad on commercial terms take on the guise of foreign aid. In the convoluted accounting practice of U.S. public statistics, the domestic costs of crop purchased by the government Outlays intended since the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933 to support prices above their free market levels are transformed into components of the cost of foreign aid. Even those who are aware of the link between food aid and U.S. farm surpluses 
do not widely recognize the ways in which the United States has used this aid as a lever to dissuade foreign governments from achieving self-sufficiency in food to feed their populations. What started out as a system providing grants and loans to underdeveloped economies at a real but moderate cost to the ample resources of America has evolved into a strategy of international patronage, creating food dependency and broad U.S. political and military control over aid recipients. It is easy, wrote one agricultural economist, to rationalize our farm surpluses into international assets, but in so doing we deceive no one but ourselves. We can go on making a virtue of them, but thoughtful people and informed leaders abroad are not deceived by what we say. They see clearly that we have been making our foreign economic policy fit our internal convenience. Footnote 1. T.W. Schultz, Value of U.S. Farm Surpluses to Underdeveloped Countries, Journal of Farm Economics, 42, December 1960, page 1026, reprinted in Gustav Reynes, editor, The United States and the Developing Economies, New York, 1964. End of footnote 1. To be sure, Congressmen and aid diplomats are much more aware than is the public of the many ways in which U.S. and World Bank loans are extended to low-income countries on terms whose aggregate effects often prove more onerous than commercial loans when the overall economy-wide effects, external economies, are taken into account, but which are ignored by economists for being external to the narrow economic models being used. Over the years, USAID loans require principal and interest payments so large as to prohibit accumulation by the aid recipients of the foreign exchange they need to finance their own economic development. Additionally, the terms on which aid is advanced often involve recipient nations in expensive military programs that cannot be met out of domestic resources without the imposition of repressive military regimes. Impoverished but peaceful peoples have been transformed into even more impoverished but warlike peoples whose military expenditures filch the resources required for their economic growth and for the democratic evolution of their political forms. The U.S. approach to foreign aid was appraised in terms of realpolitik as early as 1957 in the Senate's report on the concept objectives and evaluation of foreign assistance. The subcommittee has conducted its study on the premise that the sole test of technical assistance is the national interest of the United States. Technical assistance is not something to be done as a government enterprise for its own sake or for the sake of others. The United States government is not a charitable institution, nor is it an appropriate outlet for the charitable spirit of the American people. That spirit finds its proper instrumentality in the numerous private, philanthropic, and religious institutions, which have done so much good work abroad. Technical assistance is only one of a number of instruments available to the United States to carry out its foreign policy and to promote its national interests abroad. Besides technical assistance, these tools of foreign policy include economic aid, military assistance, security treaties, tax and commercial treaties, overseas information programs, participation in the United Nations and other international organizations, the exchange of persons program, tariff and trade policies, 
surplus agricultural commodity disposal policies, and the traditional processes of diplomatic representation. None of these tools has any particular inherent merit. Any of them may be useful in a given situation. The proper measure of a program's cost is the relationship of cost to benefits. International affairs are made up of too many intangibles for a mathematical cost-benefit ratio to be worked out, as in the case of a multi-purpose dam in the United States. But the same general concept is applicable. The cost of any foreign activity of the United States becomes significant only when it is related to the benefits which the United States receives from that activity. Footnote 2. U.S. Senate Technical Assistance Final Report of the Committee on Foreign Relations Report Number 139, March 12, 1957 87th Congress, First Session, page 18F Referred to in subsequent chapter notes as Technical Assistance 1957 Report End of Footnote 2 while not originally intended and no doubt repugnant to those men who originally saw the role of the United States vis-à-vis agriculturally retarded nations as munificent, although founded upon eventual mutual benefits, the system of foreign aid now is implemented callously, coldly, and with deliberate intent to enlarge U.S. military and political influence. Benevolence has grown into hostility toward the legitimate desires of poorer peoples to develop economically, socially, independently, and according to their own norms, a hostility which all the world is now asked to share. To make matters worse, other developed nations are now asked to bear part of the cost of this U.S. hegemonic drive. The Orwellian Semantics of U.S. Foreign Aid as noted above, any loan to a foreign country, mainly developing countries, is nominally recorded as aid if it is made within the context of some government program or is approved by some government agency. That produces the seemingly odd result that if a commercial bank or other private lender finances U.S. exports to Europe or Latin America, the loan is recorded as private investment. But if the U.S. government provides the financing or a credit guarantee to a private loan through the Export-Import Bank, Exim Bank, or the Agency for International Development, AID, or if the government simply provides its offices in the transaction, it is recorded as foreign aid. Loans and grants associated with the war in Southeast Asia also were treated as foreign aid. The United States is not alone in such euphemistic distortion. The statistical reports of Germany, France, and almost all the developed nations treat as aid virtually all of their commercial loans and financing of exports to developing countries. As long as these loans and export credits can somehow be fitted into the context of some government program. The criterion for what constitutes aid, it seems, is simply whether it is sponsored by the governments of developed nations, without regard for who actually pays the bills or the terms on which they are paid. One, therefore, is tempted to question just what the term aid has come to mean. In common usage, it means to help assist or afford support or relief. But, etymologically, 
In feudal law, it meant a customary payment made by a vassal or tenant to his lord. There is a certain irony here because what has principally been helped by U.S. aid programs is the U.S. balance of payments, U.S. industry and commerce, and long-range U.S. strategic goals. Over time, the net flow of foreign exchange is not from the United States to aid borrowing countries as implied in the modern connotation of the term aid, but from the borrowers to the United States, as in the feudal connotation. So-called foreign aid is indeed feudatory. Aid has imposed vassalage on developing countries in the form of contractual debt services, which represent mortgages on their future balance of payments earning power, as well as heavy lost opportunity costs of foregoing actions designed to guide their economies towards self-sustaining growth according to their independent desires. In 1970, the Peterson Report acknowledged that Exim Bank operations are designed to promote U.S. exports and only incidentally contribute to international development. Footnote 3. U.S. Foreign Assistance in the 1970s, A New Approach. Washington, D.C., 1970, page 16, referred to in subsequent chapter notes as the Peterson Report. End of footnote 3. Incorporated in 1934 to provide government financing for U.S. exports to countries that did not qualify for private credit, the Exim Bank has provided U.S. exporters with a substantial competitive advantage in the terms on which their products are financed relative to those of other nations. Available data indicate that export credit, not relative prices, has been the major factor underlying U.S. commercial supremacy in many commodity lines, for price differentials alone cannot explain the evolution of U.S. exports over time. Yet, export promotion by the developed nations to the underdeveloped at prices often higher than those prevailing in world markets hardly can be considered aid. Britain's Radcliffe Report cited the Exim Bank's explicit strategy that although its loans usually are defined by the countries to which the financed exports go, the direct and immediate beneficiaries of these credits are United States labor and industry, United States exports, not the bank's dollars, go overseas. Footnote 4, quoted in the report of the Committee on the Working of the Monetary System, Principal Memoranda of Evidence, London, 1916, 11, page 105. End of footnote 4. In the process, producers in less developed countries may be thwarted, that is particularly true of the food aid which these countries have received through public law 480, and which often has worked to stave off agrarian reforms. Had these countries chosen not to accept these aid loans, their economic growth and self-sufficiency would likely have been greater. Their post-war evolution would have been more inward-looking, and would have called forth a much more rapid socio-economic evolution than has taken place. But the dumping of U.S. farm surpluses has kept crop prices below the level needed for domestic producers in these countries to break even. U.S. aid strategy thus has been designed to further America's foreign policies, whether or not these coincided with the real needs of the borrowing countries. 
Viewed in its broad outlines, U.S. foreign aid has provided short-term resources to recipients in exchange for long-term strategic, military, and economic gains to the donor. An open international economy has been brought into being, based on a military and paramilitary alliance, and whose cost-effectiveness as weighed by U.S. strategists has exceeded in value those goods and services the U.S. government has lent, and, to a much smaller extent, donated to other governments. U.S. aid policy since the early post-war period reveals a steady tightening of political, military, and economic control over intergovernmental lending, subordinating the assistance aspects increasingly to U.S. military strategy. In the immediate post-war years, for example, successful launching of the World Bank, IMF, GATT, and other international organizations required Britain's membership and the adherence of Britain and its sterling area. In a series of bilateral negotiations, U.S. diplomats first gained British compliance in a world free trade strategy and then moved successfully in a united Anglo-American bloc to bargain with continental Europe. Having gained European compliance through Marshall Plan aid and NATO military resources, the United States became the initiator of a broad exploitative move by the industrialized nations against the non-aligned countries, forcing them to orient their economies to the commercial, raw materials, and strategic needs of the developed nations. This strategy minimized any possible organized opposition by non-aligned countries against the trend of U.S. policies. Nation was set against nation, region against region. Individual countries may withdraw from this world village only at the cost of becoming exiles. Cuba under Castro, Indonesia under Sukarno, Egypt with its Aswan Dam, the short-lived revolutionary regimes of Brazil and Ghana, post-revolution Iran, and most recently Venezuela under Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, Bolivia under Ivo Morales, and Libya under Muammar Gaddafi. The Militarization of U.S. Foreign Aid By 1969, military aid, security assistance, made up 52% of U.S. aid. This hardly can be said to have fostered the economic and social evolution of recipient countries, but imposed a socially destructive military overhead on them. As the Peterson Report observed in 1970, of the appropriations for economic programs under the Foreign Assistance Act, 26% was actually for security purposes raising the military share of U.S. foreign aid to 63%. Footnote 5, Peterson Report, page 5, end of footnote 5. On January 5, 1971, the New York Times reported, The General Accounting Office told a Congressional subcommittee today that the Food for Peace program has permitted foreign countries to purchase nearly $700 million in military equipment in the last five years. Senator William Proxmire, chairman, said that the use of food for peace funds to purchase weapons smacked of an Orwellian operation, an example in doublethink in which food for peace has been converted into food for war. Footnote 6. Congressmen told of $693 million arms sales under food for peace program. The New York Times, January 5th, 1971. End of footnote 6. Two days later, the Times reported that U.S. foreign military assistance for 1970 is put at eight times that figure in budget. 
It quoted Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security, Armistead I. Selden Jr., as testifying that the U.S. aid programs provided a total of $4.896 billion for military assistance in the last fiscal year. Included in this total were $2.4 billion in grants, primarily for nations in Southeast Asia, $518 million in support assistance, $108 million through use of local currencies obtained through the Food for Peace program, $1.4 billion in military sales, and $224 million in transfer of surplus military equipment. This figure did not include the amounts of surplus equipment given to South Vietnam or the installations turned over to South Vietnam or Thailand because of wartime conditions. These figures were not available. Recipients of this military aid were divided into two categories, the forward defense countries bordering the communist bloc and the less strategically placed countries, within which or upon whose borders threat of communist military presence was viewed as less dangerous by the United States. Of paramount importance in the forward defense countries was preservation of the status quo ante, whatever its implications for their long-term economic growth. Any disturbance of this status, it was hypothesized, might work to communist advantage simply by introducing a new element of risk. Footnote 7. For an elaboration of this strategy, see Lincoln Bloomfield and Amelia C. Lice, Controlling Small Wars, a Strategy for the 1970s. New York, 1969. End of footnote 7. U.S. aid to this military ring was designed to minimize the risk of the unknown by supporting existing governments and social systems, directly through transfers of arms and military personnel, and indirectly through economic aid to mitigate discontent which, if unchecked, might impel these nations out of the U.S. orbit. That explains U.S. support of the Greek dictatorship, of half-starving India and Pakistan, each with military ambitions, and of the Southeast Asian countries, whose development potentials in the short run clearly were unable to justify the massive infusions of resources the United States injected. Four forward defense nations received 70% of all U.S. military support assistance in 1968, Korea, Taiwan, Greece, and Turkey. In view of the Greek colonel's treatment of their country's democracy, the official rationale underlying this military assistance to these countries appears somewhat tongue-in-cheek. Each is exposed to and threatened by the substantial military power of a nearby communist neighbor whose belligerence may increase that threat with little or no warning, as has been the case with North Korea. The more than 1.8 million men in armed forces of these four countries make a vital contribution to the military posture upon which U.S. forward strategy for free world defense in part depends. Footnote 8. The Foreign Assistance Program, Annual Report to the Congress for Fiscal Year 1969, page 44, referred to in subsequent chapter notes as 
AID Annual Report, 1969. End of footnote 8. Nor were South Korea under Park and Taiwan under Chiang Kai-shek models of modern democracy. Taken on balance, even ostensibly economic U.S. aid is ultimately military or paramilitary in purpose. It is designed primarily to enable foreign countries to support a military superstructure capable of saving the United States the necessity of implanting its own armed forces in these countries. In the words of the Corey Report of March 1970, the magnitude of the U.S. aid effort was largely justified on national interest grounds, with the annual level determined less by abstract development goals than by the level of additional resources thought necessary to support a military establishment adequate to assure national independence under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Footnote 9. Quoted in the New York Times, March 8, 1970. End of footnote 9. Also promoted have been policing operations to contain incipient revolutionary movements that might threaten the status quo. The objective is for aid clients to grow or remain able to purchase U.S. exports on commercial terms in accordance with some growth factor over time, where purchase of imports still is possible after meeting the balance of payments costs of their military budgets. This commercial benefit is merely a hoped-for residuum secondary to U.S. military strategic aims. Foreign military strength has been encouraged to the extent that it is or becomes a component of U.S. military objectives and is subject to U.S. control. Discouraged, however, are tendencies toward developing independent military forces capable of initiating acts that might not serve U.S. policy ends. Yugoslavia was, for a time, denied U.S. economic assistance, when it embarked upon a policy of building its own air arm. The threat of withholding further military and related aid has become an especially persuasive bargaining tool in the hands of U.S. military planners, as today's weapon systems have become dependent on the United States for replacements and spare parts as well as for more efficient weapons as American military technology evolves. According to the Peterson Report, Export promotion made up 42% of U.S. aid in fiscal year 1969, 6% alone being left for welfare and emergency relief. Here, again, U.S. strategists divided clients into two categories, developed and underdeveloped countries. The developed nations may at some point put forth national strategies of their own to rival U.S. commercial objectives. Such was the case with the Common Market's Protectionist Agricultural Policy and its associate membership status for selected African countries which, among other results, tended to channel Africa's mineral resources toward Europe. Underdeveloped aid recipient countries are not able to seek new spheres of influence and, in general, can decide only by which industrial sphere they prefer to be entrapped. In the wake of the Peterson Report in the 1970s, they could move into the U.S. policy sphere, into an open international economy revolving around the axis of U.S. military and commercial supremacy. They could align themselves with some other developed nation or group of nations in the Sterling and Franck areas or with the common market, or they could develop their own self-contained protectionist regions. In practice, the African nations freed from colonialism found themselves obliged either to choose between applying for associate membership in the European Common Market, which disqualified them from proposed U.S. special tariff concessions to less developed countries, or 
to pursue an open-door trading policy which might qualify them for especially low U.S. tariffs, but would exclude them from the common market's preference system. Attempts to develop their own protectionist economies would have been denounced as communist and consigned them to the fate of Iran and later Libya, with sanctions and isolation similar to those with which the U.S. confronted Cuba and Venezuela. The basic problem with U.S. foreign aid is that economic growth abroad is encouraged by the United States, as is military preparedness, to the extent that it coincides with American commercial and military objectives, but only to that extent. From the viewpoint of U.S. self-interest, optimum foreign growth is not easy to quantify. It tends to be ambiguous in its implications for U.S. commerce. For instance, rising income abroad has been viewed as favorable to the United States when it generates demand for U.S. commercial exports, but unfavorable if it is generated or accompanied by a displacement of other U.S. exports. From the U.S. point of view, foreign economic growth would ideally express itself in a continuous net increase in demand for U.S. commercial exports, plus less direct but real contributions to the U.S. balance of payments and military position. But the roundaboutness of world trade makes calculation of these net effects of foreign economic growth upon the United States extremely complex and subject to error. The Role of Aid in America's Balance of Trade and Payments An adverse balance of trade between the United States and any given nation is not necessarily a threat to the overall balance of payments of the United States. If the U.S. trade deficit with the given nation is spent largely on the products of less developed countries, it might well have the effect of alleviating the need for U.S. foreign spending. Also, if the country running a trade surplus with the United States also holds its central bank reserves, principally in non-negotiable U.S. Treasury issues or U.S. Treasury bills, the apparent adverse trade balance of the United States is offset by the capital inflow to purchase Treasury issues, which absorbs the trading deficit. This is what happened when Saudi Arabia and the OPEC countries quadrupled oil prices in 1973-1974. See Chapter 15. This follows the long-recognized rule that whatever appearances may be, a nation enjoying a trade surplus must ultimately finance that surplus itself by supplying credit or by capital exports. The case of Japan is crucial in this respect. Japanese world trade, although in surplus with the United States, benefited the U.S. balance of payments in a number of direct and indirect ways. It was Japanese practice, since the two-tier price of gold was established in the monetary crisis of 1968, to hold Japan's central banking assets in dollars, or dollar equivalents, not to add to its minuscule gold reserves. Consequently, the favorable balance of trade of Japan with the United States, approximately $3.7 billion during 1968-1970, represented no threat to U.S. gold reserves. The bilateral U.S. trade deficit with Japan was financed in exactly the same way that domestic budget deficits of the United States have been financed, by printing dollars and dollar equivalents. Moreover, Japan's favorable trade balance with the United States was spent mostly on Japanese purchases of ores, lumber, metals, petroleum, and other raw materials, and of foodstuffs in which it is deficient. Many of these imports are the products of American-owned companies in third countries. 
A case in point is the Japanese financing of mine development of new ore discoveries made by Granby Mining Company of Canada. In return for the required advance of capital, Granby allocated the output of copper from the new ore bodies entirely to Japan at London Metal Exchange prices minus some interest factor on the funds advanced. The shipment of these ores and concentrates to Japan removed an equivalent volume of market demand for copper from the London market, tending to minimize the upward movement of copper prices. The United States was a net importer of copper and was critically interested in minimizing U.S. import costs of this essential raw material. Thus, Japanese investment in, or more properly, advanced payment for Canadian copper was of direct assistance toward reducing U.S. import expenditures. Moreover, Granby Mining Company was controlled through a majority stock interest by Zapata Nornis Incorporated, an American corporation. The apparent expenditure of some part of Japan's trade surplus with countries other than the United States is thus illusory. The purchases from Granby was from a U.S. affiliate. There is no way of knowing how many such instances exist. What is known is that to the extent that Japan's trading surplus was used to buy the products of American corporations operating in third countries, it induced a flow of profits, dividends, interest payments, and capital consumption allowances to the United States. The story does not end here. Japan's international trade was finely balanced. In 1968, for example, its global exports were reported at 12,972,000,000, global imports at 12,978,000,000. No economic statistics can be as exact as these numbers suggest, but there is no doubt that Japanese imports exports approximated perfect balance, allowance being made for statistical error, returns and allowances, and time lag effects. In that year, Japan had a trading surplus of $1.1 billion with the United States, the whole of which was employed in financing needed imports into Japan. That country's payments for this trade provided third countries with the revenue to increase their demand for U.S. exports. However, the loss in U.S. export potential caused by the increased domestic demand induced by the U.S. war in Southeast Asia meant that not all of this demand could be met by the United States. Triangularity of trade broke down to U.S. disadvantage not because of excessive U.S. imports from Japan, but because of diversion of U.S. industrial output from commodity production to arms production, and because of inordinate domestic demand resulting from the generation of spendable civilian incomes brought about by the war. At that point, and only at that point, did Japan's trading surplus with the United States become a burden to the U.S. balance of payments. Previously, triangularity had brought about a fair balance between Japan's surplus with this country and America's surplus with some other countries. With the triangular process interrupted by America's war, the Japanese surplus was transferred via Japanese imports from third countries into increased dollar holdings by her non-U.S. supplier nations. These countries in general were not constrained by firm agreements not to draw down monetary reserve assets or bank deposits from the United States as they repatriated their dollar receipts. U.S.-Japanese economic tensions thus only became problematic at the point where the U.S. economy itself became distorted and undermined by the war in Southeast Asia.
foreign development viewed as a threat if it is not dependent on the U.S. economy. Faulty economic theory and basic but politically motivated and thus willful lack of foresight deterred the United States from limiting domestic demand for goods when the nation escalated its Vietnam invasion in 1965. The exportable surplus dwindled and foreign suppliers expanded to take up the slack. During 1965 to 1970, world trade patterns shifted in ways that were adverse to the U.S. economic position. This shift was of America's own making but was not foreseen by its government, although the long history of international trade should have indicated clearly enough that it is inescapable for a major nation to embark on a major war without imposing economic controls on home demand and consumption. The United States itself had done this in World War II, but by refusing to face up to this reality during the Vietnam years with its attempts to create a guns-and-butter economy, its government planners from Robert McNamara to Chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors Gardner Ackley played a major role in destroying America's competitive advantage in world trade. With America taking this course, foreign economies, even those of developing countries, could not expand in ways advantageous to the United States. The American official ideal of a continuous increase in foreign demand for U.S. commercial exports met head-on the reality of U.S. inability to have a surplus production to export abroad while being extravagant at home. U.S. strategy turned out to be essentially self-contradictory. As a result, and as Chapter 14 discusses in detail, the United States in 1971 resorted to demanding from the rest of the world a slowdown in its own production, an increase in its income payments, and the granting of special economic assistance to the United States by other countries, dollarizing their foreign reserves via the Treasury Bill standard. Foreign aid had come full circle. It was now the United States that was to be the universal recipient of aid and on terms that it would dictate unilaterally. The implied alternative was a repudiation of the U.S. overseas debt that would have wrecked the monetary and credit systems of every nation. Economies outside the United States were to be treated as a defeated enemy if they were not obedient allies. This upshot had been implicit in American economic strategy since 1948, its aid advisors promoted the spurious but mainstream international trade theory that developing countries should foster their growth by transferring resources from production for domestic consumption to the export sector and pursue free trade import policies instead of fostering self-sufficiency by import substitution. Such recommendations are made not only through USA emissions directly but also indirectly via the World Bank IMF and other international lending organizations subject to U.S. control. Where export-oriented growth occurs, U.S. negotiators find it preferable that these exports be made by foreign affiliates of U.S. companies so that the U.S. balance of payments may benefit from the remitted earnings on these sales or from the buildup of U.S. capital assets abroad via reinvested earnings. Economic growth of the import-displacing type, growth in the direction of commercial self-sufficiency, does not satisfy U.S. self-interest except where the import-displacing firms are owned by U.S. investors 
Whether greater dependence on U.S. exports and capital investment remains the conscious motive of today's development planners or whether, as is more likely, it is an incidental result of promoting capital-intensive industries in the extractive and manufacturing sectors of developing countries, its effect is to bias foreign economic growth toward foreign dependency instead of development of their own domestic production and home markets. Accelerated growth abroad may be deemed antagonistic to specific U.S. interests, even where it works on balance to increase the overall net demand for U.S. goods and services. For instance, the Common Markets Agricultural Program generated demand for U.S. farm equipment, fertilizer inputs, and feed grains, but also restricted other classes of U.S. agricultural exports. U.S. trade negotiators responded by demanding the best of both worlds. Europe should continue to increase its imports of U.S. farm products, but simultaneously guarantee the importation of those other classes of U.S. products, despite the fact that Europe's imports of U.S. foods already had pushed Europe's trade balance into deficit with the United States. To industrial and raw material exporters alike, U.S. negotiators offered short-term aid, conditional upon long-term political and economic adherence to U.S. policies. This policy was formalized as early as 1946, when Assistant Secretary of State Clayton withdrew U.S. support from the United Nations Relief and Reconstruction Administration, UNRRA, although contractual U.S. contributions to UNRRA and its successor agencies continued at a high level through 1948. Footnote 10. For a discussion of the political price exacted for the British loan, see Gabriel Kolko, The Politics of War, The World, and United States Foreign Policy, 1943-1945, Chapter 19, especially pages 488-495, through 495, for Kolko's discussion of U.S. food aid and the political economic strategy underlying U.S. foreign assistance in the post-war years, see pages 496-501, to 501, End of footnote 10. To the United States, the problem of the UNRRA was its multilateralism. It was obliged to distribute aid according to economic need, which included Eastern Europe and other areas outside the U.S. sphere. The four largest recipients of UNRRA aid were China, Poland, Italy, and Yugoslavia. With the exception of Italy, this distribution was deemed not to be conducive to U.S. strategic aims, in 1946. After 1948, virtually all U.S. aid was bilateral, save for that extended through the World Bank and IMF, whose functioning stimulated demand for U.S. exports and opened up the international economy in accordance with U.S. designs. Footnote 11. Detailed statistics covering the U.S. aid and mutual security programs during 1946 to 1960 by area, may be found in the U.S. Department of Commerce's Balance of Payments Statistical Supplement, Revised Edition, a Supplement to the Survey of Current Business, Washington, D.C., 1963, pages 150-171, to 171. end of footnote 11. Apart from the British loan, major U.S. lending was channeled through the Exim Bank, which provided U.S. companies with about half a billion dollars annually to help foreign purchasers of U.S. exports. 
until Public Law PL 480 was passed in 1954. The remaining U.S. official non-military lending comprised mainly program loans under the Mutual Security and Related Acts. For the period 1948 to 1960 as a whole, Mutual Security grants amounted to nearly $1 billion annually, accounting for about 80% of total U.S. grants, the rest being mainly PL 480 aid. Until about 1952, over 95% of U.S. aid was extended to Europe to help reconstruct its economy, enabling Europe to become once again a growing market for U.S. exports, while strengthening it as an anti-communist ally. By 1953, European reconstruction was well underway, and the United States turned to the less industrialized countries, which had become the new battleground for social, political, and economic transformation. How Food Aid Promotes Agricultural Dependency The incoming Eisenhower administration secured enactment of the Mutual Security Act in 1953 and radically revised the Foreign Assistance Program in the following year. The major innovation was PL 480, formerly known as the Agricultural Trade Development Assistance Act. Its purpose was to develop U.S. agricultural exports, not the farm sectors of the client countries, its subtitle described it as an act to increase the consumption of United States agricultural commodities in foreign countries to improve the foreign relations of the United States and for other purposes. According to Section 2 of the Act, the Congress hereby declares it to be the policy of the United States to expand international trade to develop and expand export markets for the United States agricultural commodities, to use the abundant agricultural productivity of the United States to combat hunger and malnutrition, and to encourage economic development in the developing countries, with particular emphasis on assistance to those countries that are determined to improve their own agricultural production and to promote in other ways the foreign policy of the United States. Above all, it was designed to reduce the massive farm surpluses accumulating in the silos and warehouses of the Community Credit Corporation, CCC, without burning them or dumping them in the ocean. The act enabled the U.S. government to assist the overseas marketing of U.S. farm surpluses by acting as its own foreign exchange broker. It was to purchase surplus commodities from the CCC and sell them to foreign governments in exchange for the local currencies of these governments. Instead of for dollars or other hard currencies, these local currencies would then be resold to other U.S. government agencies, and when the currencies on hand exceeded the government's operating needs to private U.S. investors and travelers as well, PL-480 rapidly became a major channel for U.S. foreign aid. The foreign currencies received in exchange for its food sales were used by eight different U.S. government agencies for some 21 different purposes. About half was used directly by the Pentagon, the remainder by other government agencies, and in Cooley loan sales to U.S. businessmen. Footnote 12. For a detailed analysis of PL-480 activities, see Food for Peace Annual Report on Public Law 480 for the years 1965 through 1970. End of footnote 12. Public Law 480 Generated Foreign Currencies, the 1965 Annual Report on PL 480 Observed, continued to be used to pay embassy operating costs and other overseas expenses of the government. 
conserving dollars and strengthening the U.S. balance of payments position. In the last two years, over $2.7 billion in such foreign currencies have been dispersed in place of dollar payments that would, in almost all cases, otherwise have been made. Footnote 13, Food for Peace, 1965 Annual Report on Public Law 480, Washington, D.C., 1966, page 18, referred to in subsequent chapter notes as PL 480 Annual Report, 1965. End of footnote 13. Thanks to special safeguards written into the Act, PL 480 sales did not displace U.S. commercial farm exports or increase the agricultural exports of client countries. Public Law 480 requires that shipments of commodities made under its authority are not trans-shipped or diverted, that they are used within the recipient country, that normal U.S. commercial marketings and world patterns of trade are not upset, that suitable deposits of local currency are made to the credit of the United States when called for in the agreement, and that proceeds of the sale of food and fiber are applied as specified in the agreements. Footnote 14, Ibid, page 17, end of footnote 14. U.S. government agencies thus were saved from having to throw dollars into foreign exchange markets to buy the client country's currencies. The net effect was equivalent to a hard dollar sale. A further balance of payments contribution of the program was its stimulus to bona fide commercial farm exports. Expansion of dollar sales, the 1969 report on PL 480 noted, owes much to aggressive worldwide development efforts initiated under PL 480. Footnote 15. The annual report on activities carried out under Public Law 480, 83rd Congress, as amended during the period January 1st through December 31st, 1969, Washington, D.C., 1970, page 2, referred to in subsequent chapter notes as PL 480 Annual Report, 1969. End of footnote 15. As a precondition for granting PL 480 aid, the U.S. Department of Agriculture develops a program which provides for suitable quantities, establishes levels of required commercial imports from the United States and friendly countries, usually marketing requirements, and includes self-help measures suitable to the needs of the requesting countries. Footnote 16. Ibid, page 23, end of footnote 16. As an example of such marketing efforts, the report cited the country's agreement with Iran to provide 18,000 metric tons of U.S. vegetable oils through PL 480 on the condition that Iran buy 55,000 additional tons on world commercial markets. This helped reverse the downtrend in U.S. vegetable oil exports to Iran, thereby displacing third-country suppliers to that country. Sometimes the commercial returns were less direct, for instance— Proceeds from the sale of Public Law 480 oils used to finance private sector agricultural and livestock development projects are expected to result in sales of other U.S. agricultural commodities such as feed, grains, and livestock breeding stock, as well as supplies and equipment needed in constructing additional facilities for livestock and meat production, processing, and distribution. The requirement that foreign purchases of U.S. farm commodities on commercial terms reach prescribed levels was based on the principle of fixed market share. The larger the foreign food market grew, the more it had to import from the United States. Usual marketing requirements, the report specified, are generally incorporated in agreements and are based on historical import levels. Commercial imports may be required from global free world sources, from the United States, or from a combination of both 
and must be accomplished within the supply period of the agreement. Provisions are also included in agreements to prevent resale, diversion, or transshipment of public law 480 commodities. Hence, the aid borrower had to increase its aggregate farm imports from the United States in proportion to its domestic market growth, while its farm exports could not increase and potentially displace U.S. commercial exports. This did not constitute constructive long-term assistance to the aid-borrowing countries. Neither their farm sectors nor their balance of payments position were helped. They were contractually obliged not to implement policies of domestic agricultural self-sufficiency, but to assure the United States a guaranteed future share in their domestic markets. Self-help, therefore, was narrowly constrained within existing income and distribution patterns, that is, in the context of a continued deterioration in the agricultural trade accounts of the aid recipients. On the surface, food aid appeared to offer a convenient combination. It promoted economic development in the recipient countries and at the same time allowed the United States to defer a politically risky reform of its domestic agricultural price support policy, which was fostering surpluses. Soon, however, certain economists voiced fears that the proponents of PL-480 were ignoring a potential danger by relieving the recipient countries of the necessity of supplying their ever-increasing demands for food on their own, food aid may discourage them from attempting increased internal production. Footnote 17. For a review of the literature on how U.S. food aid has worked to impair foreign agricultural self-sufficiency, see Clifford R. Kern, Looking a Gift Horse in the Mouth. The Economics of Food Aid Programs, Political Science Quarterly, 83, March 1968, page 59, end of footnote 17. To make matters even worse, domestic banking in these countries was not to be aided. PL-480 recipients were required to carry out all transactions through foreign branches of U.S. banks. Footnote 18, PL-480 Annual Report, 1969, page 24F, end of footnote 18. Of the ten nominal categories of self-help, number ten, the final provision called for carrying out voluntary programs to control population, although how such a provision could be voluntary was hard to define. Footnote 19, Ibid, page 53F, into footnote 19. Not less than 5% of the sales proceeds were to be made available to the foreign country for family planning programs. Footnote 20, Ibid, page 10, into footnote 20. Meanwhile, Population growth and widening markets would entail mounting food deficits through the historical market share provision concerning purchases from the United States and its allies. Receipt of U.S. aid commodities tended to lower domestic food prices, discouraging agricultural production and retarding capital formation in agriculture. Such complex dependency patterns associated with U.S. aid, lending, prompted one observer to comment that the recommended self-help policies tend to be those which contribute to the U.S. trade and investment position, as is the case particularly in the fostering of technology-intensive farm investment. The planting of new hybrid varieties of wheat and other crops, for instance, entails the importation of new seeds and farm machinery from the United States. When suggestions were put forth to increase agricultural self-sufficiency abroad, some special interest group was usually quick to lobby against it. For instance, when President Nixon proposed to drop the Tide Aid Policy in 1970, the president of the Fertilizer Institute protested that this would 
undermine American opportunities to develop long-range trade relationships with these nations. Experience shows that as emerging nations grow into viable economy, they tend to do business with the commercial ties developed under aid programs, which included fertilizer exports. Footnote 21. Fertilizer Group wraps aid program change as harmful to industry. Journal of Commerce, November 9, 1970. End of footnote 21. How Food Aid Has Helped the U.S. Balance of Payments During 1955-1969, PL-480 accounted for some 23% of total U.S. farm exports. Mutual security food sales extended through the State Department's Agency for International Development, AID, accounted for 4%, and raw materials barter programs arranged through the Defense Department approximated 2%, Table 9.1. Thus, all government export programs taken together accounted for some 29% of total U.S. farm exports. This ratio had been even higher during the 1950s when it averaged some 36%. In 1969, four countries accounted for 69% of PL-480 aid, led by India, 29%, Indonesia, 15%, and Korea, 11%. Wheat made up 40% of the crop shipments. The PL-480 crop disposal program was achieved at no economic cost to the United States. The country's farm surpluses would have been purchased by the CCC as part of its farm price support program, regardless of whether they could be marketed abroad. For Table 9.1, see page 265 of the text. In fact, Operations under Public Law 480 have assisted in reducing costs to the American taxpayer of storing and servicing food surpluses. Footnote 22, PL 480 Annual Report 1965, page 17, end of footnote 22. According to the Peterson Report, the true economic cost of making these export sales was only 50% of their nominal aid transfer price as more than half the budgetary cost would be required in any event to support farm incomes in the United States. Footnote 23, Peterson Report, page 31, end of footnote 23. Thus, the effective cost to the United States of its $16.2 billion in the PL-480 program through 1969 was cut by some $8.1 billion. Furthermore, the government dispersed some $3 billion of its foreign currencies obtained through the program to its various agencies, sold half a billion dollars to private enterprise, and expended some $1.3 billion for common defense through the Pentagon, mainly in Korea and Vietnam. The Defense Department used $1.7 billion in barter for strategic raw materials, Long-term dollar and other convertible currency sales made up another $1.6 billion, so that the total balance of payments credits amounted to $8.1 billion, just matching the domestic $8.1 billion 
in what the CCC would have had to expend to store or otherwise dispose of these crops. A policy change was enacted in 1966, calling for the State Department to shift completely to hard currency sales by 1971. Footnote 24. PL 480 Annual Report, 1969, page 17. End of footnote 24. Thus, by 1969, among Title I sales agreements made with 22 countries, only six provided for any local currency financing, Ghana, India, Korea, Pakistan, Tunisia, and Vietnam, and only one exclusively, Vietnam. Footnote 25 Ibid, page 1, parentheses added. End of footnote 25 among the domestic currency expenditures under the PL 480 program, market development projects include sponsoring trade mission tours of the United States by foreign buyers, participation in trade fairs overseas, and publicity and advertising campaigns. Promotional activities reach 70 countries. Some 40 private U.S. agricultural trade and producer groups were working on continuing project agreements with the Department of Agriculture's Foreign Agricultural Service. Footnote 26, Ibid, page 2F, end of footnote 26. Section 104B1 of PL 480 provides that not less than 5% of these currencies may be used to maintain, expand, or develop foreign markets for U.S. agricultural commodities. Footnote 27, Ibid. Page 85, end of footnote 27, with some $116 million having been spent for such purposes since the program's inception. Four tobacco export associations were cooperators in this PL 480 sponsored market development program. Among the commodities financed through PL 480 sales was $24.5 million in tobacco, half of it going to Vietnam. Additional political economic self interest was written into the act through the Hickenlooper Amendment, which, until Peru successfully challenged it in 1968, called for food and other forms of aid to be used as a threat to autonomous decisions by client countries. Any foreign country that nationalized U.S. investments without satisfactory and prompt compensation to U.S. investors would have its food aid withheld. The idea was to reduce the riskiness of U.S. foreign investments in aid-recipient countries. Secretary of Agriculture Orville Freeman openly acknowledged the use of food trade and aid as a political lever in an important policy-setting article, Malthus, Marx, and the North American Breadbasket. Footnote 28, Foreign Affairs 45, July 1967. End of footnote 28. Our unmatched food-producing capability, he asserted, has strengthened our foreign policy immeasurably. Footnote 29, Ibid, page 584, end of footnote 29. Its first effect was upon the balance of power between East and West. North America became a vital supplier of communist nations' food needs, with the result that their food deficits are causing them to become politically and militarily vulnerable. The United States had supplanted China as Japan's main source of food imports. China, in fact, became dependent on Western Hemisphere grain supplies. 
Without our ability to generate huge farm exports, these strong economic ties could not have developed. In geographic terms, Japan is off the coast of California. This is but one of the more dramatic illustrations of the value of a productive farm sector in supporting our foreign policy. In 1961, the Kennedy administration brought about as part of its enlargement of presidential powers a fundamental restructuring of aid programs, centralizing all activities in the State Department under the newly created Agency for International Development. The most important feature of the new program was the enlistment of aid activities to help reduce the rising deficit in the U.S. balance of payments. Unless the payments deficit were overcome, U.S. strategists argued, the transfer of economic and diplomatic power to continental Europe would take place, proportionate to the outflow of U.S. gold. To assist low-income countries without further strengthening Europe as an economic rival, all aid became tied to the purchase of U.S. goods and services, except in the case of specifically military or paramilitary assistance to Asia, where security aims outweighed economics. A gold budget was established as an accounting control device to maximize the aid program's balance of payments contribution. Recipients of U.S. aid, in short, were required to subsidize the U.S. balance of payments. New export credits under all aid programs were to be compensated in counterpart funds. In addition, all aid financed commodities had to be shipped in U.S. flagships at freight rates above world tramp rates. Commerce Department figures show that some 39% of total U.S. flagships receipts from foreigners on ocean freight in 1961 derived from the transport of U.S. aid commodities. Footnote 30. On this and related points concerning the balance of payments impact of U.S. foreign aid, see Michael Hudson, A Financial Payments Flow Analysis of U.S. International Transactions, 1960 to 1968. Pages 24 through 33. End of footnote 30. The Peterson Report estimated that the cost of USA to its recipients approximated 15% more than going world prices. Footnote 31, Peterson Report, page 32. End of footnote 31. This combination of high commodity prices and extremely high shipping costs led some countries to withdraw from the U.S. aid program on the grounds that they simply could not afford further U.S. assistance. In order to make certain that no displacement of commercial exports took place, foreign aid was subjected to what was termed an additionality provision. Additionality measures were an attempt to prevent AID financing of goods that might otherwise have been exported through regular commercial transactions. The principal device used was limiting the selection of U.S. products permissible for AID financing to those in which the U.S. share of the local commercial market was small, so that aid-financed imports of these products would very likely be additional to normal commercial purchases from the United States. Footnote 32, AID Annual Report, 1969, page 23, FF, end of footnote 32. The report added, Difficulties arose because local businessmen, not host governments, do most of the importing of AID-financed commodities. 
These private importers act according to commercial motives. Their governments often had to use unpopular restrictive exchange, import, or credit arrangements to induce private importers to buy the less competitive U.S. products permissible for AID financing. The official AID estimate that this measure benefited the U.S. balance of payments by only $35 million per year seems low. By 1968, U.S. aid was contributing massively to the balance of payments, accounting for $904 million surplus for the United States, being the amount by which the $1.5 billion received for U.S. aid exceeded the direct cost of new aid extended. Footnote 33, Hudson, a financial payments flow analysis, Table 3, into footnote 33. See Table 9.2. Table 9.2 can be found on page 270 of the text. Some 95% of this new aid was tied directly to purchases of U.S. goods and services. This may understate the full contribution to the U.S. balance of payments. According to the AID Annual Report for 1969, the AID program contributed a net surplus estimated at $242 million to the U.S. balance of payments in fiscal 1969. The 1968 surplus was $81 million. Footnote 34. AID Annual Report, 1969, page 23, into footnote 34. According to the Exim Bank's 1968 report, Repayments and interest on loans made by Exim Bank and on export loans guaranteed or insured by it are estimated to have contributed over $1.7 billion to the United States balance of payments during the year. Footnote 35, Exim Bank Annual Report, 1968, page 6. See also page 11FF. End of footnote 35. It seems probable that repayments of military loans brought the foreign aid program's net contribution to the U.S. balance of payments to over $2 billion in 1968. Thus, did the aid-borrowing countries finance their own submission as the U.S. foreign aid program became one of the major sources of strength in the nation's balance of payments, a remunerative investment of government finance capital, not the net economic cost that the term aid supposedly connotes? Foreign Aid and Cold War Geopolitics To integrate export promotion with diplomatic aims, responsibility for administering PL-480 aid was, as noted above, transferred from the Department of Agriculture to the State Department. This centralization of all foreign assistance within AID reinforced the State Department's capacity to secure leases on military bases, signatures on diplomatic agreements, and the general military and political loyalty of foreign governments. The biennial aid packages offered to Spain in exchange for airbase rights are cases in point. Criticizing this political use of aid, the Cory Report accused U.S. foreign aid of holding too tightly to the position that development assistance provided by the U.S. should secure political support for the U.S. on important current issues. Footnote 36, The New York Times, March 8, 1970, End of footnote 36. Meanwhile, the Peace Corps replaced the more belligerent instruments of pre-war diplomacy and yielded a political gain at home by attracting the support of many groups that would have opposed an outright increase in military involvement abroad. Aid rhetoric emphasized economic development as a social alternative to communism rather than a military offset to revolutionary movements. 
the threat to the status quo among America's eight clients, it was recognized, was becoming more internal than external in nature, more political than overtly military. The new Cold War strategy was defended with disarming simplicity on the ground that it would inhibit revolutionary sentiments abroad by ameliorating poverty. Secretary of Defense McNamara described foreign aid as a weapon in his congressional testimony on the Foreign Assistance Act of 1964. In my considered judgment, this program and the foreign aid program generally has now become the most critical element of our overall national security effort if we are to meet the avowed communist threat across the entire spectrum of conflict then we must also be ready to take whatever measures are necessary to counter their efforts to promote guerrilla wars and insurrections and much of this task can be accomplished only by the assistance both military and economic we give our less prosperous allies as president johnson recently stated the foreign aid program is the best weapon we have to ensure that our own men in uniform need not go into combat. Footnote 37. U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Foreign Affairs. Hearings on H.R. 10502. 88th Congress, Second Session, 1964, page 83 FF. For an elaboration of this attitude, see Mr. McNamara's Montreal address of 1967 into footnote 37 after the may 1965 build-up in vietnam the days of bilateral aid were numbered curtailing u.s ability to directly manage its foreign assistance program in 1966 president johnson asked edward corey then u.s ambassador to ethiopia to draft a new multilateral aid strategy Corey's 1966 report was followed by that of Sir Robert Jackson for the United Nations in 1968 and another by a committee headed by James A. Perkins, president of Cornell University and a director of the Chase Manhattan Bank, as well as serving on the steering committee of the Bilderberg Group. By this time, anti-war sentiment had come to threaten the entire aid program, including the Perkins Committee, to conclude. Finally, the committee believes that development cooperation provides the U.S. with an alternative to military involvement for playing a continuing role in the less developed world. Doves or hawks on our military commitment in Vietnam can equally support assistance for development. Footnote 38. The President's General Advisory Committee on Foreign Assistance, 1968. For URL, see page 271 of the text. End of footnote 38. When the new Republican administration took office in 1969, a further recasting of the U.S. aid program seemed required. Congressional opposition to military commitment of resources was increasing rapidly. If the overall aims of U.S. strategy were to be pursued into the 1970s, it required multilateral programs to mobilize foreign official resources to supplement those of the United States, whose world designs also would be less subject to domestic opposition to U.S. involvement abroad if conducted with free world allies. This tactic already had been recommended by Congress in its 1957 report on technical assistance, which noted, 1. The multilateral character of the U.S. program affords a means of utilizing the resources of other nations 
Two, a multilateral approach through the UN program is particularly appropriate in fields where bilateral efforts are likely to encounter national sensitivities and resistance on the grounds of outside interference. Public administration is one such field. Another in some countries is in areas where there is substantial private American investment. Footnote 39. Technical Assistance, 1957 Report, page 28, of footnote 39. The Peterson Report, by the commission chaired by Bank of America President Rudolph A. Peterson, was the result of this perception. Released in April 1970, its theme was that bilateralism must give way to a policy more multilateral in appearance. Virtually rephrasing McNamara's strategy, the report explained, In the past, the line of demarcation between security and development interests was blurred. The United States faced a divided world, in which foreign assistance was justified in terms of the conflict between East and West. Today, all countries have a common interest in building and maintaining a global environment in which each can prosper. Footnote 40, Peterson Report, page 7, end of footnote 40. A predominantly bilateral United States program, the report asserted, is no longer politically tenable in our relations with many developing countries, nor is it advisable in view of what other countries are doing in international development. Footnote 41, Ibid, page 22, end of footnote 41. As Representative Roos of Wisconsin expressed this idea, the principal advantages of multilateral financial institutions are burden-sharing and economic expertise. Through these institutions, other developed countries share with the United States the cost of providing development assistance as other nations have grown in economic strength. Our share of the financial cost has declined. Footnote 42, U.S. Congressional Record, September 14, 1970, page H, 8,646. End of footnote 42. Regarding the Asian Development Bank, for instance... While it is true that Japan plays a big role in the Asian bank that is good, not bad, I think it is fine. We are getting others to bear what should properly be their share of the burden, and if we can get the Japanese in Asia, assuming a large-scale development role, I think that is one of the more helpful signs. In terms of the Asian bank, I submit that our diplomats have done an excellent job in compelling burden-sharing on the part of Japan. Footnote 43, Ibid, page H, 8,649, end of footnote 43. Toward this end, the Peterson Commission drafted a militant strategy on four fronts. 1. To transfer the disposition of foreign aid from the legislative to the executive arm of the government, bypassing congressional opposition to the president's use of aid strategy as a means for expanding paramilitary involvement abroad. 2. To adapt a low-profile military posture by inducing foreign governments to recruit their own people in place of United States troops in existing and future military involvements, e.g. the Vietnamization of the Southeast Asian conflict. 3. To use bilateral and multilateral aid as an economic lever against the European common market. 4. 
to implement a more realistic strategy against social revolution abroad and its associated threats of nationalism and regional blockism. To prevent congressional budget cuts in the foreign aid program and to reduce its net burden on the federal budget, the Peterson Commission urged establishment of a new lending agency, the International Development Bank, empowered to issue its own bonds and hence to be independent of congressional funding or approval. This meant that if Congress were to reduce aid appropriations or vote against strategic use of foreign assistance, as it did in October 1971, the proposed new bank could obtain funds from private lenders in the United States or abroad. The military and paramilitary purposes of U.S. aid programs thus could be secured even over the opposition of the Congress. The Cold War machine would become self-financing and hence self-perpetuating. The Exim Bank already was doing this on a substantial scale. In 1962, it initiated the sale of guaranteed certificates of participation in pools of its loans. The bank has sold in all some $3.5 billion of participation certificates with maturities varying from 3 to 15 years. Footnote 44, Exim Bank Annual Report, 1968, page 18F, end of footnote 44, Participations. In Exim Bank's financing of exports were sold to foreigners and foreign branches of U.S. commercial banks, enlisting overseas funds for the promotion of U.S. exports. The Peterson Commission believed that the United States could phase out its military grant program as the nation's allies had become so enmeshed in U.S. weapons systems that they had no choice but to continue to depend on U.S. arms. Easy credit policies employed by the Defense Department to finance military sales had succeeded in Americanizing the armament systems of most non-communist countries. The path thus had been paved for military aid to arms trade. In the past, these countries needed the close involvement of U.S. military advisors to ensure the effective integration of United States arms and equipment into their forces, by now, however, military officials in most of these countries have achieved adequate levels of professional competence and facility with modern arms. Footnote 45, Peterson Report, page 14, end of footnote 45. The proposed new strategy required foreign countries to finance and operate their own military systems. The U.S. would sell them the hardware, foreign countries would provide the manpower. Security assistance in the 1970s, the report concluded, should be aimed at improving the military defense of our allies and move them toward greater military self-reliance to serve as a substitute for the deployment of U.S. forces abroad, to pay for U.S. base air flights, and to deal with crisis situations. Footnote 46, Ibid, page 6, into footnote 46. A major reason for the Peterson Report's emphasis on multilateralism was its desire to shift the burden of financing U.S. world strategy onto Europe's shoulders. Thus, whereas the Kennedy administration's tide aid policies were designed to prevent the U.S. expenditures on foreign aid from spilling over to Europe's advantage, the Peterson strategy was more aggressively designed to involve Europe's treasuries. The Peterson Report was not unmindful that the burdens of interest and principal repayments weigh heavily upon the aid-borrowing countries. 
The debt burden, it observed, was foreseen but not faced a decade ago. It stems from a combination of causes. Excessive export credits on terms that the developing countries cannot meet. Insufficient attention to exports. And in some cases, excessive military purchases or financial mismanagement. Whatever the causes, future export earnings of some countries are so heavily mortgaged as to endanger continuing imports, investment, and development. All countries will have to address this problem together. Footnote 47, Ibid, page 10 into footnote 47. In other words, Europe and other allies should pay U.S. dollar claims with their own public reserves. To implement this policy, Peterson went on to administer the United Nations Development Program, UNDP, in 1972 until 1978. The Third World's Dollar Debt Problems Most of the aid debt burden was owed to the United States, or at least was denominated in U.S. dollars, for example, World Bank loans. According to the World Bank's 1970 annual report, as of 1969, the external government debt of 80 less developed countries stood at $59.3 billion, exceeding by more than $40 billion the $18.8 billion in private U.S. direct investment in these countries. Annual official debt service of these countries amounted to $5 billion, compared to $2.9 billion remitted on U.S. direct investments. Latin America alone owed $17.7 billion on governmental capital account and paid $2.2 billion in official interest and amortization charges on these debts, compared to $13.8 billion of U.S. direct investments in Latin America and an associated $1.2 billion flow of income remittances to U.S. private investors in 1969. Statistics for other regions are comparable. Footnote 48, World Bank and International Development Association Annual Report, 1970, Table 9, page 48, and Survey of Current Business, October 1970, page 28F. End of footnote 48. Governmental borrowings had come to exceed liabilities on direct investment account throughout the whole of the world's less developed areas. That was true in even greater degree of U.S. official obligations to the developed nations. These statistics point to the shift of intergovernmental capital loans since World War II from productive reconstruction lending to Europe toward less productive loans to cover the widening balance of payments deficits of less developed countries. A growing portion of intergovernmental claims since World War II has represented the debt owed by aid-borrowing countries for such foreign assistance as PL-480 food aid and arms support. Many of these loans are not for directly productive purposes, as is generally connoted in the business sense of the term. Toward the underdeveloped countries, lending policies of the United States and of the IMF and World Bank, which the U.S. created, have assumed a character not dissimilar from that of the United States after World War I toward its wartime allies. It was impossible for the developing countries indefinitely to continue servicing their accumulating debts to the United States and to the international lending institutions, and their borrowings were not essentially autonomous decisions. Much was for debt service increasing their capital obligations and magnifying the burden as their debts grew, and interest rates rose. The proposal that all countries help amortize this dollar debt to the United States was a request for a net foreign exchange transfer, specifically from Europe and Japan to America. Foreign governments were asked to realign their aid policies 
in such a manner as to help the United States recoup the costs of its investment in past bilateral aid programs, including the cost of U.S. armaments. The entire world was to pay the cost of the American drive toward world domination. The Peterson Report rightly observed that, Keeping these countries on a short lease by emergency debt rescheduling operations does not show the necessary foresight. Countries with serious debt problems in trying to avoid default are likely to impose more internal and exchange restrictions and thereby intensify their future difficulties. Footnote 49, Peterson Report, page 33, end of footnote 49. Yet the report effectively insisted that these countries be kept on a leash and that any given country's debt be rescheduled only if it demonstrates by its plans and policies, that it is pursuing a coherent development program of appropriate fiscal and financial policies, i.e., deflation and a dismantling of whatever protectionist trade and monetary policies the country might have enacted. They must open their economies to foreign trade and investment, and must show determination to develop by reducing growth in their populations." The Peterson Commission sought to prevent African countries from accepting associate membership in the common market, urging the United States to retaliate by offering special tariff preferences to Latin America, foreclosing U.S. markets to Africa that were in commercial competition with Latin America. If the United States cannot reach agreement with other industrial countries on this non-discriminatory approach, it should unilaterally extend such tariff preferences to all developing countries except those that choose to remain in existing preferential trade agreements with industrial countries. Footnote 50, Ibid, page 19 into footnote 50. The report specifically recommended that U.S. quotas be dropped on sugar, textiles, and meat. It recognized that it would be too much to expect Europe, in the absence of advantage to it, to subscribe to the Inter-American Development Bank, IDB, or to participate in concessional lending to the more backward Latin American countries. The IDB, it concluded, would have to continue being funded by the United States, although it might borrow in Canada, Europe, and Japan. The U.S. aid program thus took on two new forms. First, it was directed against the associate members of the European Economic Community, EEC, and thus against common market Europe itself. Second, it had begun to move away from U.S. congressional funding toward borrowing in international capital markets, thus toward an existence independent of public will in the United States, i.e., toward self-perpetuation as Cold War policy by the United States, whatever the changing attitude of the citizens and of the Congress of the United States toward the Cold War. U.S. government international finance capital was preparing to sever itself from domestic constraints. It was emerging as an autonomous institution capable of effectuating policy decisions without the need to secure the support of the American people. U.S. strategists also moved to mobilize the non-communist world's multinational aid organizations to serve U.S. ends rather than those of the aid-borrowing countries. The intent was to transfer European, Japanese, and Canadian resources to the United States. American representatives to the World Bank asked that purchases of capital and services financed by its loans be made on the basis of each member nation's subscription to World Bank stock, not according to competitive bidding as in the past, when most of the competitive bids had come from U.S. suppliers. 
As early as 1962, Frank Kaufman, a State Department aid administrator, testified before a congressional subcommittee that the aid efforts of other donor countries have an important indirect beneficial effect on the U.S. balance of payments that is probably roughly proportional to the amount of their aid. Footnote 51, Testimony of Frank M. Coffin, December 12, 1962, before the Congressional Subcommittee on International Exchange and Payments, quoted in Rainus, editor, The United States and the Developing Economies, page 139, end of footnote 51. This benefit was made more direct in February 1971 when U.S. officials asked, that a World Bank loan to finance a Brazilian steel mill be tied to the purchase of 25% U.S. goods and services, i.e., in proportion to the U.S. government's 25% stock ownership in the bank. Footnote 52. Move by Brazil stirs U.S. issue. The New York Times, February 22, 1971. End of footnote 52. The U.S. government sought to use the World Bank much in the manner it had wielded bilateral aid as a lever against foreign moves against U.S. investments. Bank President McNamara, for instance, argued against the non-U.S. bank directors on loans to Bolivia and Guyana on the ground that In both countries there are actual or impending cases of seizure of United States companies with unsettled questions of compensation. At issue essentially was the United States' interpretation of the World Bank's own policy on the nationalization question. The long-standing bank policy is not to lend to any country that is in dispute with another member country over expropriation, where no reasonable and speedy attempt to negotiate a settlement is underway. Europe was barred from loans for a long period after seizure of the Suez Canal under this policy, for example. In the debate in the bank's board of directors on the two recent cases, it is understood the United States was largely isolated. It was the other directors, not the president of the bank, Robert S. McNamara, who disputed the arguments of Robert E. Wyzerowski, the United States director. Footnote 53. World Bank used for U.S. protest. Opposition to loans reflects stand on compensation of nationalized companies. The New York Times, June 28th. 1971. End of footnote 53. John Connolly, U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, was reported to be taking a get-tough stance with developing countries which expropriate U.S. investments without reimbursing the companies promptly and adequately. The crackdown showed up last week in this country's abstention on two votes for loans to Bolivia, one a $23 million loan from the World Bank and the other a $19 million loan from the Inter-American Development Bank. The U.S. was serving notice of its anger over Bolivia's nationalization of a $2 million operation of the Texas-based International Metals Corporation. Implicit in the vote abstention is the possibility of further U.S. retaliation against governments that take a cavalier attitude toward U.S. property rights. The latest abstentions follow up two earlier abstentions on small loans, one of $6 million to Bolivia for cattle development from the World Bank, another a $5.4 million World Bank loan to Guyana to build dikes against the sea. Mr. Connolly apparently hopes these abstentions will deter Guyana from its rumored intention to nationalize some bauxite mines owned by Reynolds Metals Corporation. Key Congressman 
are urging the administration not only to cast its own votes against loans to countries which take over U.S. investments, but to lobby actively within the international banks against such loans. Footnote 54, Christian Science Monitor, November 3rd, 1971, page 6, end of footnote 54. In effect, the U.S. government position was that it could, for example, determine the price at which Anacondas and Kennecott's Chilean copper mines could sell their copper to their U.S. parent companies at so-called producer's prices, about one-third of the going world market price, while blocking host countries, such as Chile, from preventing such action by regulating purchasing or otherwise interfering with foreign affiliates of U.S. firms. However, opposition to the World Bank developed within the American liberal community as the naked self-interest of American aid came to be perceived and as its implicit conflict with the interests of aid-recipient countries became blatant in its serving as an arm of the U.S. State Department. By 1970, a 20th Century Fund study remarked that underlying the Rockefeller Report on Latin America was the assumption on which U.S. policy in this hemisphere has traditionally been based, that the United States must continue to dominate Latin America, and that any basic change in the established structure of Latin American society would be detrimental to the security interests of the United States. Footnote 55. Jerome Levinson and Juan Donis, The Alliance That Lost Its Way, A Critical Report on the Alliance for Progress, Chicago, 1970, for the 20th Century Fund, quoted in Joseph A. Page's review, A Helpless Helping Hand to Latin America, The New York Times, January 10, 1971, end of footnote 55. Reviewing the 20th Century Fund study, Georgetown Law Professor Joseph A. Page commented that the Rhetoric that promised Latin America a peaceful revolution implied the need for basic structural change that would inevitably create a certain amount of instability. Yet United States corporate officials who were supposed to participate in the Alliance for Progress by exporting capital and technology to Latin America held that unstable conditions amounted to an unfavorable business climate and threatened existing business interests. And the Pentagon, CIA, et al., believed that instability jeopardized United States security. The history of the 1960s teaches that the political and social goals of the alliance were quickly sacrificed whenever confronted with competing United States security or economic interests. As Levinson and Onis forthrightly state, if the alliance is defined as a policy based on this proposition, that economic growth Social reform and political democracy are mutually reinforcing aspects of an effective development program. The pertinent question becomes not whether it has failed, but to what extent it has been attempted. Footnote 56. Ibid. End of footnote 56. The foreign aid program had come to play a perverse role in the development of foreign countries, in its early post-war phase, 1945 to 1952, it was primarily multilateral, through UNRRA, the World Bank, and less visibly through the IMF. That was a period when U.S. balance of payments outflows were seen as helping alleviate the world's dollar shortage. U.S. aid was comprised largely of grants to Europe and of loans that were not tied, but 
From the late 1950s to 1970, U.S. foreign aid became increasingly bilateral in nature and increasingly tied to U.S. balance of payments aims as this balance moved into deficit. The function of such aid no longer was to put American dollars into the treasuries of foreign governments, but to dispose of surplus food and other exports produced in the U.S. and to obtain for the U.S. government and its agencies cash payment in return. Over and above this aim was the military dimension of such aid. In 1970, the U.S. government earned $1.3 billion on its foreign aid programs, being the amount by which its hard currency interest and principal repayments of $2 billion exceeded the $0.7 billion balance of payments cost of its new aid extensions. Toward the end of further aiding the U.S. balance of payments, the United States government, in keeping with the Peterson Report's suggestion, moved once again toward multilateral forms of aid, but this time the organization of world aid was to be much different from that which had followed World War II. It was to become a program of compulsory burden sharing by Europe, Japan, and Canada in America's aid domination and militarization of the Third World. This time there was to be no balance of payments cost to the U.S. government of its aid, which was to be tied to the greatest extent possible. In effect, multilateralization of U.S. foreign aid in the 1970s was to mean foreign governments paying the cost of American aid. Specifically, the flow of multilateral aid payments was to flow from the developed nations outside of the United States to Latin America and other less developed countries, and from them to the United States. That remains the case today. End of chapter 9